This yes. is hell. All right then. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell. And on this week's hell, Trumpism didn't start with Donald Trump. It's actually been growing within conservatism and the Republican Party for around 30 years. Mexico's elections are happening tomorrow, hopefully that is, if all things go well, which they may or may not. Australia's brutal and secretive immigration policy may be coming to a country near you, especially if that country near you is the United States. Christianity destroyed the classical world as the Roman Empire brutally attacked past cultures that didn't embrace the new religion. Capitalism is in conflict with freedom as conservatives continue to believe the power of money doesn't come close to the power of government. Of course, we'll have a moment of truth, which I will tell you about in a moment. And I'll explain something to uh, Henry Giraud that I poorly explained to him on This Is Hell a few weeks ago. That's all during this week's live four-hour edition of This Is Hell. Our first guest this week is law professor Robert Tsai, co-author of the Boston Review article Trumpism Before Trump, which he wrote with Calvin Turbeek. That's right, Trumpism started way before Trump. You can go back to 1990 and hear failed Republican Party presidential nomination candidate Pat Buchanan outlining exactly what we now call Trumpism. And for whatever reason, blame only on Trump. Trumpism is conservatism and its trajectory over the past 30 years or thereabouts. It's nothing new. It's not an anomaly. Trump is no outlier or outsider. Trump is the Republican Party and conservatism as they exist today, and you better understand and get used to it. Robert is professor of law at American University. He's the author of 2014's America's Forgotten Constitutions, Defiant Visions of Power and Community. His new book, Practical Equality, Forging Justice in a Divided Nation, will be published early next year. Following our conversation on how there's nothing new about Trumpism, that Trumpism is conservatism, we'll start the second hour with a report from our correspondent in Mexico, Laura Carlson, director of the Americas Program for the Center for International Policy in Mexico City. Laura has an article in the print edition of Counterpunch, Mexicans Want Change, But Will the System Let Them? Mexico's most recent presidential election back in 2012 was contested with the eventually declared loser even staging his own inauguration in protest of what he declared was a corrupt system. That same candidate, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, is now having a huge, now enjoying a huge lead in all the polls leading up to tomorrow's presidential vote in Mexico. But will the ruling elite allow him to win this time or will they block him again? We'll discuss potential outsider interference and exactly how left Obrador is Spoiler alert, not so left after all. When we hear from Laura, you may remember the last time Laura was on in March reporting on an all-women's meeting she attended that was hosted by the Zapatista in the mountains of Chiapas. Find out how to get the print edition of Counterpunch, where you can find Laura's writing that we are discussing this week, at counterpunch.org. In the second half of our second hour, once we give you a preview of tomorrow's election in Mexico, and for that matter, a preview of Mexico's next six years, Political scientist Ed Bermilla wrote the Baffler article, Out of Sight, Out of Our Minds. As the American detainee crisis deepens, Australia's own immigration catastrophe points to a bleaker future. Yes, Trump's immigration policy can get freaking worse than it already is. How do we know? Because there's a tiny island in the South Pacific whose economy was destroyed by colonialism and then financialization, and now whose economy depends on detaining 
immigrants and asylum seekers indefinitely so Australia doesn't have to. And if Trump administration policy continues as it appears it will, the U.S. will need to start putting immigrants and asylum seekers out of sight and out of mind, too. Ed is an assistant professor of political science at Bradley University. He hosts the Mass for Shut-Ins podcast and frequently writes at ginandtacos.com. After learning about Australia's open secret of a grim immigrant and asylum secret detention center on a remote island in the South Pacific, we'll learn about the real history of Christianity and the Roman Empire when we will be schooled by journalist Catherine Nixie, author of The Darkening Age, The Christian Destruction of the Classical World. It turns out Christianity didn't win some intellectual challenge or philosophical debate to become the predominant religion, thought, and culture throughout Europe. Rather, Christianity won by force, imposing their society on the classical world and actively erasing that classical society from our history. Christianity didn't have a better argument than the classical world. No, Christianity just destroyed the classical world and all of the classical world's many significant advances and texts that defined possibly the world's greatest civilization. Catherine studied classics at Cambridge and subsequently worked as a classics teacher for several years before becoming a journalist on the arts desk at the Times of London, where she still works. And Catherine's book, The Darkening Age, The Christian Destruction of the Classical World, will be the prize for having the best answer to this week's question from hell. I'll be telling you this week's question from hell in a few minutes, so stay tuned in for that. We'll begin our fourth and final hour of this week's This is Hell by speaking with economist Rob Larson, author of the new book, Capitalism versus Freedom, The Toll Road to Serfdom. The economic beliefs broadcast by right-wing conservative talk radio shows argue their unchecked capitalism is the best way to ensure true freedom. But while they fixate on the power of government and its potential to limit freedom, the right ignores the power of money, as do the authors of the think their thinking, including the very dead Nobel Prize-winning economist Milton Friedman. While conservatives have uh, been promoting competition at the heart of their economic rhetoric, they support a system that leads to the concentration and consolidation of wealth, and thus power. But the power of money is a power the right must ignore in order to prop up their weak economic ideology. We'll analyze the fight between capitalism and freedom when we talk to Rob, who is professor of economics at Tacoma Community College in Washington State. Rob is the author of the 2012 book, Bleak Economics, A Heartwarming Introduction to Financial Catastrophe, the jobs crisis, and environmental destruction. We'll wrap up this week's This Is Hell as we do most week's show. That is with a moment of truth from the lovely lobes of Jeff Dorchin. And this week, Jeff is appalled by Scrotus, whatever that is. So that's Trumpism started happening way before Trump, and for whatever reason, Democrats ignored it, even when it infected their own party. Mexico's presidential election previewed, assuming that there will be a Mexican presidential election and it will be free, fair, and safe from foreign interference by its ruling elite at home and that annoying neighbor to the north. Australia's indefinite detention of immigrants and asylum seekers on an island located outside of their own nation's laws may be the future of U.S. immigration policy under Trump. Christianity didn't defeat the classical world intellectually. Christianity destroyed the classical world and all its civilization's advances. Hashtag thanks Christianity. Freedom is at war with the conservative view of free market capitalism, which opposes competition and actively ignores the power of money while obsessing on the more limited power of government. And Jeff is appalled by Scrotus during a moment of truth. All that plus uh, hopefully more eloquent response to Henry Giroux, as well as some rotten history listener feedback, what Alex has been up to on social media. We'll tell you what's happening on Patreon during our uh, and our Patreon podcast. 
which you can hear by signing up as a supporter on Patreon. We'll give you the question from Hell. whole bunch of people we want to thank for supporting This Is Hell and sharing the show online. Maybe we'll get to twist off knowledge. I'll be reminding you over and over and over again of our upcoming This Is Hell anniversary and listener appreciation party and art show happening in three weeks on Saturday, July 21st at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago's Little India or Chai Town neighborhood from 3 p.m. until you leave. It's going to be music, art, food, a raffle, and of course, we'll also be telling you later on what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry, Richard Norwood, and our new volunteer, Leo. Hello, Alex. What's new about you? He's a little busy right now. What's new about you, Richard? <laughs> um... Well, I finally completed that project. Oh, yes. Tell people what the deep, deep project was. I uh, finished archiving the past pre-9-11 shows. So we have... Or whatever tapes, we, whatever recordings <laughs> we have of yes, those. 1996 through 2001. I'm also very glad that you were able to unearth about 30 blank cassette tapes <laughs> so we can use those in the future. Exactly. This is Hell is broadcast live without interruption on WNUR 89.3 FM Evanston, Chicago Sound Experiment. Streaming live online at our website, thisishell.com. Podcast shortly after at the same place, thisishell.com. Now airing an abbreviated one-hour version on Sunday mornings in Moscow, Idaho on... Radio Free Moscow, and on Lumpen Radio in Chicago's South Side. Brave enough to be live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover cure, or hangover. This is hell, and somebody over there has this week's hangover yeah, I'm cure. I'm going to do it right now. Excellent. This morning's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is from former Oasis frontman Liam Gallagher's uh, hangover cure, at least according to the Northeast Mississippi Daily Journal. <laughs> That's where I get all my Oasis the news from. The celebratainment section <laughs> of the Northeast Mississippi Daily Journal's website, the journal, or djernal.com, <laughs> ran the story, Liam Gallagher's Strange Hangover Cure. Rich reports, Liam Gallagher avoids hangovers by mixing gin and energy release vitamins. I mean, that's just like getting drunk again, isn't it? <laughs> it is. <laughs> the cigarettes and alcohol hit maker has made the claim during a conversation with a fan on Twitter who said he must have been suffering the day after he was reportedly supplied with 50 bottles of Don Perignon champagne to get the party started at an Isle of Wight festival last weekend. When the follower made the claim on the microblogging platform, Liam replied, Nah, don't get hangovers with gin and barracocas. Barocas. Barocas. Which is the brand name for an effervescent vitamin tablet. That makes this week's Hangover Cure from former Oasis frontman Liam Gallagher's Hangover Cure, according to Celebratement section of the Northeast Mississippi Daily Journal's <laughs> website. Celebratainment section of the Northeast Mississippi Journal's website. Again, that's where I get all of my Oasis news. You are listening to God's favorite radio show. Prove us wrong. This is hell. Cultural critic, writer, university professor, journalist, all-around great guy, Henry Giroux, disagrees with us. Henry does not think this is hell. Henry holds the McMaster University Chair for Scholarship in the Public Interest and is the Paulo Freire 
distinguished scholar in critical pedagogy, named for the author of one of the foundational texts of the critical pedagogy movement. Henry's new book is entitled American Nightmare, Facing the Challenge of Fascism, and we have him on whenever we want to get caught up on neoliberalism and the world's subtle and pernicious slide toward authoritarianism that has been taking place for decades. Henry does not believe our show is hell, that this is hell. Henry believes it's heaven in that we talk about the topics that are shunned by the mainstream media, and Henry told me so a few weeks ago here on This Is Hell. When he said this is not hell, Henry was arguing that on our show we are willing to discuss the issues that the ruling elites, corporate consolidated mainstream media, are afraid to discuss. Fearing they will upset their masters, they've conned themselves into thinking, really are their friends. When Henry confronted me live on air about our show being titled This Is Hell, I stumbled just like I did just now, I blurting out something about our show being held to the corporate conglomerate, conglomerated media. When I started doing this show, calling it This Is Hell made sense relative to the media career, if you can call it that, which I was experiencing at the time. At that point, back in 1996, I was writing reviews of venues from restaurants to bars to stores and everything in between for the Chicago Tribune's website project, Metromix. My job was to write completely unopinionated reviews, reviews that weren't reviews, merely ads that were as objective as possible, but passing as reviews. I was also working as a freelance writer, publishing articles that promoted public health issues, again, of which I was told to be completely objective. Well, not completely. They wanted me to make certain to report on these public health solutions positively, as these solutions were predetermined to be good for the community. That's why they were going to be in the publication. But like my writing at the Tribune website, it was editorialized without any editorialization, supposedly. I was also working in the local Fox affiliates TV newsroom. Again, I was confronted with journalism as promotion by a fax machine that constantly churned out press releases with which satellite to use in order to put this or that publicity stunt on the air. Sometimes they were local events that were nothing more than ads. Do you remember that stupid 1990s dance, the Macarena? I was actually sent by my editors to Daily Plaza in Chicago's Loop, where the Picasso is, to uh, cover something called the Big Mac Arena, which was a new co-optation of the dance by McDonald's, who was trying to jump on that huge Macarena bandwagon. I went with my shooter, that's cool journalist talk for a cameraman, and told him to take whatever images he wanted. I then sat down and fantasized about killing myself right there at that moment while my shooter was filming. I remember thinking at least if I killed myself, this would be a news story worth covering. But at that moment, McDonald's PR person came over to me and started pitching people to interview and questions to ask and how much fun the Big Macarena really is. And I told her, no thanks, we're just trying to get some B-roll, which wasn't true. My editor was adamant about how much fun and how awesome the Big Macarena coverage would be for the evening news. Despite doing everything I could to make certain the segment did not air, it still did. And for those who are pursuing a career in journalism, getting that kind of job in a local newsroom was heaven. It was the pearly gates you wanted to pass through to get to the paradise of a career in the news, a career that was having fewer and fewer and fewer openings. It was nirvana, paradise, the foot in the pearly gates to get you onto the escalator to the top of the heap in news media. But to me, those pearly gates the professional newsroom led to nothing but the death of journalism. If that was heaven then, I thought what I wanted to make was 
the media's hell. And this is their, the professional journalist class's hell when it comes to the news. But this is hell to the media for a lot more reasons than only our challenge to journalism to be a lot more than an advertising platform for the business and public relations communities. This is hell for mainstream corporate conglomerated media because we will ask the questions that corporate media's ruling elite overlords would punish them for asking by cutting off media access to the most powerful and cutting off their funding by slashing advertising. However, this is hell doesn't accept advertising dollars from the 1% of the 1%, and we don't want to talk to the most powerful. They've bought enough access to the media, uh, mainstream media as it is. They cannot buy This Is Hell. This Is Hell doesn't care about access or advertising. Sure, it's a horrible business model, but journalism, if you want to call what we do journalism, should not be for sale to the highest bidder or to anyone for that matter. For journalism that has been professionalized, the point that it promotes the agenda of the wealthiest and their corporations that rule over us, This Is Hell. This Is Hell also reports on the most hellish events in the world that the mainstream ignores. From wars and coups the United States orchestrated and continues to execute, and the long history of those U.S.-inspired and completely unnecessary coups and wars, to racism and its institutionalization throughout U.S. history and to this day, to misogyny and the patriarchy and hatred of the other that is destroying the innocent outside our borders and ourselves within our souls, to climate change and how it's already killing our planet as it goes unreported within the establishment media, to being free to criticize the global economic system that unfairly and unequally imposes itself on the world's poorest so we can be relatively rich, to the fact that there is an alternative to capitalism's most recent demon, neoliberalism, and I can go on. Today alone, we are challenging the media narrative that Trump is an anomaly within conservative within conservatism, when in reality Trumpism is the result of three decades of conservative thinking and rhetoric. We're undoing the U.S. media storyline of the U.S. never interfering in the elections of others. We're revealing a 17-year-old detention camp, the purpose of which is to indefinitely detain immigrants and asylum seekers, something our establishment media refuses to report. We're questioning the history of Christianity, which is a complete taboo in the U.S. media, and we're examining the impact conservative capitalism has on freedom, something the media would never consider as neoliberalism has bipartisan approval, which makes it above and beyond any criticism when the parties agree the media does not report. Maybe that's why the mainstream corporate establishment media always wants bipartisanism, so they can report even less on what's really happening. So yes, Henry Giroux, this is hell, maybe not for you, maybe not for me, maybe not for our listeners, but it is for the media. This is the anti-media, and this is hell. And this week's question from hell is, when the next fall happens, where are you pillaging first? When the next fall happens, where are you pillaging first? All replies right on air during the third hour of this week's This is Hell. Our favorite one's a copy of Catherine Nixie's book, which we will be featuring later on today's show, The Darkening Age, The Christian Destruction of the Classical World. Leave your responses right now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Listen during the third hour of this week's show to hear all the responses and to find out if you've won. Coming up on this week's This is Hell, Trumpism started happening way before Trump, and for whatever reason, Democrats ignored it even when it infected their own party. Mexico's presidential election previewed Australia's indefinite detention of immigrants and asylum seekers on an island located outside of their own nation's laws. Christianity didn't defeat the classical world in 
intellectually. Christianity destroyed the classical world and all its civilization's advances. Freedom is at war with conservative view of capitalism, which opposes competition and ignores the power of money. And Jeff is appalled by something called scrotus. Plus, rotten history, listener feedback, what Alex has been up to on social media, uh, what's going on on our Patreon podcast this week, uh, the quest from hell, a whole bunch of people we want to thank for supporting This Is Hell and for sharing the show online. Maybe we'll get to twist off knowledge, what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell, and I'll be reminding you throughout this week's show that on Saturday, July 21st, we'll be having the This Is Hell Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show Saturday, July 21st at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, from 3 p.m. until you leave. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell Sanity and Talk Radio, so clearly and sadly, Noam's gone insane. This is hell. Trumpism is not an invention of Donald Trump. No, Trumpism predates Trump's presidency by around 30 years, back when it was being defined by failed Republican Party presidential nominee Pat Buchanan. Here to help us with the history of what has been only recently labeled Trumpism, law professor Robert L. Tsai is co-author of the Boston Review article Trumpism Before Trump, which he wrote with Calvin Turbeek. Welcome to This Is Hell, Robert. Thanks for having me, Chuck. It's great to be here. Robert is professor of law at American University, and you can follow him on Twitter at Robert Eltsai, Robert L-T-S-A-I. So, you know, one of the things that really got me this week is, well, when I was reading your piece, you start a month ago, the Trump administration announced it would start separating families detained at the U.S.-Mexico border in its effort to deter unauthorized border crossings, while Donald Trump is credited with inaugurating this fiery brand of nationalism and zero-tolerance enforcement approach. It is myopic to consider these inhumane policies in isolation from the conservative coalition that cheers or enables them. In a New York Times opinion piece by David Brooks this week headlined, Republican or Conservative, You Have to Choose, Brooks writes, the never-Trumpers are having an interesting debate over the over this question. Is it time to leave the Republican Party? George Will and Steve Schmidt say yes. The Trumpian rot is all the way down. Bill Crystal says not so fast. Once Donald Trump falls, the party could be brought back to health and the fight has to be within the party as well as without it. How much is Trump an outlier of conservative conservatism today? Well, I think what what Trump uh, embodies is uh, what we describe as a form of grassroots uh, conservatism um, that has put immigration at the center of of sort of uh, mobilization for uh, for at least uh, the last 30 years uh, in in a kind of high octane fashion, and um, you know Trumpism sort of represents a, a takeover of the Republican Party uh, on on this issue. Um, there's been a sort of uh, uncomfortable uh, uh, status quo, if you will. Uh, between the two major parties on immigration uh, for quite some time. And so uh, what Trumpism really tapped into was this sense that uh, harsher methods, um, uh, uh, you know, ought to really be taken uh, uh, against foreigners uh, in our in our midst. And that's the kind of context that we try to provide in this piece. What do you think, uh, Brooks, George Will, former Ma- uh, McCain presidential campaign manager Steve Schmidt, what do you think they miss in understanding, in their understanding of conservatism, if they think that Trump's policies are antithetical to conservatism? Well, I think what they, I think what they miss is uh, what we think they miss is uh, this this sort of more traditionalist uh, sense 
that uh, conservatism represents, which is um, a kind of cultural belief that uh, citizenship uh, is much more than just about um, uh, loyalty to a particular nation and um, sort of sub- subscribing to a set of, uh, of beliefs. And I think that a lot of mainstream conservatives believe that. A lot of uh, liberals also uh, talk about citizenship in those terms. But the people that we that we uh, write about, the people that, that I think are in charge these days, the people that we associate with Trumpism, uh, don't believe that at all. They believe that there is something called... Um, uh, Western civilization uh, and culture, and that a part of uh, stopping people from coming into this country um, uh, it, uh, it concerns like saving that culture and saving the the, the people that uh, believe in this culture. Now it's all very vague and ambiguous, uh, but that's very much the the language that uh, these cultural nationalists use. You write the truth is that a number of key figures staked out a form of conservative populism based on ruthless demographic control long before Trump came along to rebrand it. He didn't invent the distinctive anti-humanitarian rhetoric of anchor babies, criminal aliens and animals all on his own. He just happens to be its most flamboyant and successful practitioner. Conservative populism based on ruthless demographic control. This is in reaction to what The New York Times this week, also in a different opinion piece called white extinction anxiety. To what degree do demographic changes define U.S. politics today in both parties, the Republicans and their fear of losing a white majority, and Democrats who are banking on that change to give them more power? Are both parties facing what they perceive as demographic inevitabilities? Well, that's, that's, a, really, that's a really great question, and it's a, it's a tough one to answer. Um, but I do, I do think that um, what, the, what Trumpism is really uh, tapped into, and and you you mentioned some of these figures that we talk about. We we trace a lot of this stuff, at least in the in the in the most recent period, uh, to figures like uh, Pat Buchanan um, and his candidacies in '92, '96, and 2000 uh, for the American presidency, and the language of uh, culture war that he sort of inaugurates becomes very popular. Uh, with grassroots uh, Republicans. Uh, We also talk about uh, people like Steve King, who has been sort of beating the anti-immigration drum um, uh, more recently. Obviously, Jeff Sessions, who is sort of out there with King. Um, And then, of course, Chris Kobach, who's the current Secretary of State in Kansas um, and is running for governor there. Uh, All these figures, uh, even before Donald Trump um, emerged on the stage um, to rebrand uh, these, this movement, so to speak, um, these figures all sort of made immigration and, dem- and and sort of ruthless demographic control the center of Republican politics, and uh, they very much pioneered the language of um, uh, anchor babies, of um, this concern that you mentioned about um, uh, a white extinction. They tapped into a, a sort of a cross section of fears shared not only by white supremacists but also mainstream. Uh, white Americans, um, that things are were changing too, too quickly in this country. So uh, all these figures sort of were doing this before Donald Trump, uh, but he's the one that really sort of uh, broke through the glass ceiling, so to speak. And you write of those, uh, a host of key figures, as you were just mentioning, among them former Republican primary presidential candidate Pat Buchanan, Attorney General Jeff Sessions, Congressman Steve King, Kansas Secretary of State Chris Kobach, and the person who led, he's also the person who led Trump's now dissolved voter fraud uh, commission, uh, consistently made control of the non-white population, especially the foreigners in our midst, the centerpiece of right-wing movement politics. 
controlling non-whites as the centerpiece of right-wing movement politics. To what degree, then, is racism at the heart of the Republican Party? Yeah, that's 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 a terrific question. I think, <clears throat> excuse me, I think that uh, for a certain se- a sector of the of the party, uh, it's an explicit part of it, right? That the people who are the avowed white uh, white nationalists uh, and uh, others who uh, who see uh, controlling people uh, as about controlling race and controlling culture, um, you know, that, that's a huge aspect of the, of the party, and it goes way back. Uh, a lot of this shift. Can be traced back to um, uh, uh, Americans' reaction to uh, desegregation, and then, of course, um, the, 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 the the sort of uh, bolting of, the, of of white voters from the Democratic uh, Party to the Republican Party uh, only accelerated after civil rights. Right. So, so some of this was already happening, uh, where, where where many whites, many white conservatives were already moving uh, toward the Republican Party, and. Uh, what, what Trumpism before Trump had been doing was periodically sort of tapping into uh, the sense of, of white white extinction that you talked about. White nationalists talk about it more explicitly, but mainstream conservatives talk about it more obliquely um, as a threat to the culture, as a threat to uh, one's way of life. Um, but what what they both share is this sense that we have to control foreign people as a way of dealing with uh, these sorts of concerns. So how much success are they having? How much success are Republicans having uh, when it comes to gerrymandering, when it comes to voter suppression toward creating a permanent Republican governing coalition, despite the challenge they will face within the next dec- decade or so due to shifting demographics? Well, at least in certain states, um, you know, in the last uh, couple of decades, um, they've had tremendous success, I think, uh, changing the conversation uh, from things like uh, uh, forgiveness, certainly things like uh, amnesty or, or pathways to citizenship uh, for the people who are here. Um, they've changed that discourse to one of exclusion, of, uh, of unfairness, um, and of, of course, as we've just talked about, of, of extinction of, of white culture or American way of life. So, uh, so the fact that we're talking in these other terms, I think, um, would be seen as a success um, by these grassroots conservatives. If you look at these states like Arizona um, and Kansas, um, uh, these are these are places where uh, you've seen some of these experiments um, uh, where people have been asked to sort of um, show their papers. Uh, as, as you alluded to, uh, Chris Kobach, for example, has been a pioneer of a number of these measures that have been intended to try to make life in America uh, so miserable, right, for migrants that they, and this is the, the word that, that broke through in, in national politics, that they self-deport, right, that they, uh, that they leave on their own. This is the language that Mitt Romney uh, used during, uh, during his failed bid for the presidency, uh, and Kobach was one of his advisors uh, at, that, at that time. But Kobach and others have been trying to um, experiment in a number of these states uh, and local jurisdictions by uh, by coming up with these uh, measures to try to restrict uh, uh, where migrants can work, where they can live, and so forth. You know, one thing I kept thinking about when I was reading your work is how much should we hold the words and actions of people like Pat Buchanan, Jeff, Sench- Jeff Sessions, uh, Steve King, Chris Kobach, responsible for the rise of the far right, even the growing popularity of fascism in the United States today? How 
How surprised should we be by the rise of the far right? Because that's how everybody reacts to it, that they're completely surprised and taken aback that this happened. How surprised should we be when it looks like for the last 28 years, at the very least, the words and rhetoric of a rising far right were there for us to see and hear? Well, certainly be too much to say that they bear all the responsibility. Um, average people's concerns and sensibilities uh, should probably like take take most of the uh, uh, kind of blame. But I do think that they have been at this for a while, and some of the things that they've done uh, have been fairly outrageous, right? Some of the things that Steve King, uh, Jeff Sessions, Chris Kobach uh, have been saying for, for now years, for example, uh, uh, suggesting uh, really without any evidence that uh, undocumented migrants were somehow uh, voting in elections uh, illegally uh, in large numbers. There's no real evidence of this. Uh, and even uh, uh, trials in court have shown that there's no real evidence of this. But nevertheless, they've been saying this uh, over and over. Um, uh, the, the, the sort of rhetoric that we associate with Trumpism today, uh, painting uh, migrants as, uh, as, as violent uh, criminals, murderers, rapists, uh, and so forth, this is discourse that were, that was also used uh, by by people like uh, Representative King, amplified by uh, a bright uh, Breitbart Media, for example, um, who actually amplified the voice of all these figures that we talk about: Sessions, uh, King, Kobach, uh, and so forth. Um, uh, this is a tactic that has been been used for years, and now we just see it as part of sort of everyday political discourse. We are speaking with law professor Robert L. Tsai. He is co-author of the Boston Review article, Trumpism Before Trump, which he wrote with Calvin Turbeek. Robert is professor of law at American University. Robert's new book that will be published early next year will be entitled Practical Equality, Forging Justice in a Divided Nation. You can follow Robert on Twitter at Robert L. Tsai. That's Robert T-L-T-S-A-I. Earlier, you were mentioning, right at the beginning of our conversation, you mentioned patriotism. And you write, each of the major figures who developed Trumpism before Trump, again, that's Buchanan, Sessions, King, and Kobach, served as patrons for a grassroots form of conservative nationalism. Now, it's important to point out that nationalism is not patriotism. The difference between patriotism and nationalism is that the patriot is proud of his country for what it does, and the nationalist is proud of his country no matter what it does. Therefore, patriotism creates a feeling of responsibility, while nationalism creates a feeling of, well, blind arrogance that can at times even lead to war. In your opinion, is conservative nationalism in conflict with patriotism? And how would you describe the relationship between nationalism and patriotism within conservative nationalism. Well, I think what you've described is is, is certainly a fair characterization of uh, of the difference between these two concepts, right? There there can be both liberal forms of nationalism and conservative forms uh, of nationalism. By nationalism, um, I refer to uh, the the idea that. Um, uh, that the nation is a kind of uh, political community that is that is distinct uh, f- uh, from other kinds of political communities. Um, that there are many of them out there. Now, conservative conservative nationalism um, really uh, again uh, turns to uh, other grounds for this this sense of who we are as a people. Right, uh, culture uh, for for white nationalists it would be race. Right, that there's somehow uh, uh, white communities, black communities, yellow communities, and so forth that are so distinct that they, they can they can never uh, they can never be part of a single 
uh, true nation. Um, liberal liberal nationalists uh, think about these things differently. I alluded to this in our earlier part of our conversation. They they tend to think about um, a nation is constituted by ideas, right? That if we believe in certain kinds of values and ideas in a civic sense, uh, then that's enough. Uh, and for, for much of our recent modern history, um, that's the sense of, of nationhood that we have sort of been guided by. Um, patriotism, um, I think, very basically is just love of country. And love of country can be used and abused uh, in any number of ways. Let's get back to Pat Buchanan for a second, because back in 1992, when he was at the Republican National Convention, uh, I was not doing this show yet. We started in 1996, so I didn't have the wonderful opportunity of abusing Pat Buchanan on the air. So you write that at the 1992 (laughs) Republican National Convention, Pat Buchanan called on conservatives to engage liberals in a grand culture war for the soul of America. He depicted God's country under siege by militant gay rights activists, radical feminists, and environmental extremists. Buchanan considered himself a Barry Goldwater zealot, a refusal to compromise. Buchanan observed in an introduction of the 1990 printing of Goldwater's 1960 book, The Conscience of a Conservative, characterizes every great moment. Its true believers are impatient, Buchanan wrote, to the point of intolerance with the half-hearted and the half-committed. To what extent, then, did... Buchanan's 1990 writing and 1992 speech portend the rise of not only the Tea Party, but the unwillingness of Republicans to work with Democrats throughout the Obama years. Did Buchanan tell the world nearly 30 years before the fact exactly how far right and non-conciliatory the Republican Party would become? Uh, I think he did. I, I think that that famous speech that he gave in his in his losing bid for uh, the Republican nomination, 92, this culture war uh, speech really galvanized uh, uh, the people that worked for him. He really tried to give voice to uh, the, the working class, uh, but in particular the white workers uh, that he talked about. And he really, um, he really, you know, kind of brought to national politics uh, this this uh, concern that what was really destroying America, in his view, was the left. Right. So, as you as you mentioned, uh, the enemies he identified on the left were gay rights activists and feminists. Now, um, the, the most recent uh, version of that, though, uh, has uh, has has described enemies on the left as uh, uh, open border types. Right. This is what Jeff Sessions today uh, says in every single speech that he gives to uh, county sheriffs. Um, uh, meetings of uh, state troopers in California, Arizona, uh, e- even in front of um, prosecutors, uh, 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 federal and, 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 and local prosecutors in every state that he's visited, that somehow what, what's happening is uh, America is being destroyed by those on the left who believe in open borders ideology, he says, uh, and, um, uh, and sanctuary cities. So what we're seeing in the discourse is basically a kind of variation on the themes uh, that Pat Buchanan sort of pioneered in 92. You point out that Buchanan, even eventually, he kind of broke from Goldwater's views on immigration by demanding stiff penalties for companies that employed undocumented migrants. How much has conservatism, if conservatism has been on this trajectory towards Trumpism since 1990, since 1992, let's say, uh, if that's been the trajectory of conservatism, then 
maybe what David Brooks is talking about is maybe the conservatism he grew up with in the 1960s. So how much has today's Mm -hmm. conservatism changed from the 1960s view of conservatism? That's a great question. I, I do. I, I do think that many of, uh, well, pretty much every modern conservative today traces their uh, thinking through Goldwater in some respect. Uh, Goldwater really gave conservatives a kind of uh, vision of conservatism that could be, at least in his view, and those that that follow him, could be uh, overtly. Uh, divorced from the explicitly sort of racist forms of conservatism that had racked American politics for so long. Um, and part of Goldwater's thinking on the immigration issue, um, you, you might say today, uh, you might use the language sort of neoliberalism to describe some of his thinking. He really did have some limits um, in terms of how far he was willing to go to discourage uh, uh, illegal immigration, right? That he really didn't think that punishing um, business people for hiring undocumented migrants was really the way to go. He thought that that was um, that sort of violated the values of um, laissez-faire economics that he sort of uh, subscribed to. That's really changed in, in today's um, grassroots conservative thinking. Right? They very much believe that stronger measures um, must be taken to to, to deter uh, even small business people from hiring undocumented migrants. This is the thinking of people like Kobach and Steve King, uh, and even Jeff Sessions, who really uh, want to um, to stop um, a small business from that. Now, are, 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 these, are these sound economic precepts? That's the real question that the, that the people in power are having to grapple with, right? Um, if we really go down this road much further, what are we going to see? Are we going to see you know, uh, berries, um, unpicked and, um, you know, um, crab pots, uh, undealt with, um, uh, grapes rotting on the vine. Are we, are we really going to see, uh, um, you know, a working class white people, uh, take up those jobs that have now been performed by migrants. So, uh, that's really the question that I think the party is trying to, uh, will have to soon face. You mentioned earlier how there was no <clears throat> evidence of uh, many of the fears that the conservatives and Republicans have about immigration. Uh, you mentioned in your article how there is no evidence that backs up the idea of voter fraud that Chris Kobach has been promoting for so long. So to what extent through misinformation, disinformation, propaganda, is the U.S. currently living in separate realities? Uh, is there one set of evidence for the right and another set of evidence for the left? And what does that mean for our political discourse? Yeah, the polarization of our news sources um, has been has been a real problem, right? Um, uh, many people have already spilled plenty of ink talking about the polarization of our politics, but but really, the, the the separate media sources uh, kind of feeding into the the different streams of our politics really has been a major problem. As you say, if you turn on if you if you read Breitbart Breitbart News, if you turn on Fox News constantly, uh, you will be awash in in these kinds of overblown um, descriptions, right, of migrant criminality uh, and threats to um, the American way of life. You're not going to hear any of that if you right turn on NPR. Um, and, and I suppose one thing that we're really missing is a kind of sober conversation about uh, what to do about uh, undocumented 
migrants in our midst, of which there are many, right? Uh, to what extent we can do things without um, without hurting our economy, uh, uh, without acting in ways that are uh, inhumane. Um, these are serious conversations we all need to be having, whether we're we're liberals or or conservatives. But but if our uh, news sources are so different as you suggest, uh, we're going to continue to have trouble um, having these kinds of conversations. In the article that you write at Boston Review with Calvin Turbeek, uh, you quote throughout the words of many of these conservative leaders who have been bringing about Trumpism since 1990. And it just made me wonder, because, you know, you're talking about Pat Buchanan at the Republican National Convention in, in 1992, completely outlining what is going to be happening with the Republican Party as it was already being determined that it was going to be moving farther and farther to the right. So do we ignore political rhetoric? Do we just dismiss it as, oh, that's just politics far too blithely? Uh, do, we, do we ignore it? Do we dismiss political rhetoric as just po- political talk at our own risk? I, I don't think we can dismiss it. I think um, we've been talking about Repu- Republicans and what they've done to uh, kind, of, kind of push the immigration issue in a direction that is less fact-based. Uh, somewhat more hysterical, but we haven't yet talked about the Democratic Party's failures, right? Um, these Republican leaders that we've, that we've been discussing really stepped into a vacuum in part because um, Democratic leaders kind of refused to talk about uh, immigration. You know, they refused to, uh, 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 in large part, kind of confront these concerns, these cultural concerns, uh, these economic concerns that people were were, were facing, um, uh, and as a result, the issue got sort of taken away from Democrats in lots of ways. Uh, so Democrats are sort of, and people on the left are really are playing catch up. And um, well, my own view is that you, you can't let others sort of, um, you know, seize the issue and 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 talk about it in these ways. Um, you really, uh, you know, when when conservative cultural nationalists talk about immigration. Uh, as a religious issue, right? We saw Sessions invoking uh, Romans 13 as a justification for taking harsh measures. This was in the news just not too long ago. Um, people on the left, uh, people in the Democratic Party, really need to engage the religious um, rhetoric, right? That there's just more than one religious way to think about immigration. Uh, and they really need to meet both the economic and the religious rhetoric, I think, head on. One last question for you, Robert. We have been speaking with law professor Robert L. Tsai. He is co-author of the Boston Review article, Trumpism Before Trump, which he wrote with Calvin Turbeek. Robert is professor of law at American University. He's the author of the 2014 book, America's Forgotten Constitutions, Defiant Visions of Power and Community. And his new book that's going to be published early next year is going to be entitled Practical Equality, Forging Justice in a Divided Nation. You can follow Robert on Twitter at Robert L. Tsai. That's T-S-A-I. And we really look forward to having you on next year when your book comes out, Robert. Uh, one last question for you. And as we do with all of our list, or all of our guests, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. To what extent is the Republican Party today promoting or setting up a system that can be fairly called apartheid? Well, we, we, we certainly ought to be worried about the harshness uh, of the measures, right? Whether we're talking about uh, things like travel bans, um, 
that that sort of stoke animosity towards people of the Muslim faith, right? Assuming that they're all terrorists or uh, uh, willing to do us harm, uh, or whether we're going to take sort of draconian measures at the borders and deny uh, children and their parents um, asylum, right? That's th- these are really harsh exclusionary across the board measures um, that really start to approach the kinds of things you're you're, you're talking about. Um, this is why sort of um, people on the left have been making comparisons to uh, Japanese American internment, right? Um, it's because because that too was uh, a set of policies that assumed very broadly that a group of a group of people uh, was uh, criminal, potentially dangerous. Um, and we look back on that period, in history uh, with regret, right? With having made assumptions uh, that turned out to be, that to be, to be quite false and, to, and, and that, we've in, that we engage in sort of anti-humanitarian um, uh, proposals uh, really without, without cause. So, so I do think that we need to have these conversations now um, before, we, before we go too far down the road or, or we really might be looking at even harsher measures than we can imagine today. On that happy note, Robert, thank you very much for being on our show this week. And when your book comes out next year, you can count on the fact that I will be bugging you to get you back on our show. It would be a pleasure. Thanks so much, Chuck. Take care, Robert. Live from the nightmare of want, this is hell. Mexico is holding their presidential election tomorrow, hopefully. And hopefully it will be a free and fair election without interference from Mexico's ruling class and their allies in the United States. But no matter what happens, Mexico's future is, as our next guest argues, turbulent. We'll learn why when we hear from our Mexico correspondent here on This Is Hell. Laura Carlson. Laura is director of the Americas program for the Center for International Policy in Mexico City and advisor to Just Associates. You may remember the last time Laura was on in March reporting on an all-women's meeting she attended that was hosted by the Zapatista in the mountains of Chiapas. Laura has an article in the print edition of Counterpunch, Mexicans Want Change, But Will the System Let Them?, which you can find out more about at counterpunch.org. Get the That Was Hell email newsletter free every Monday. Go to thisishell.com. Sign up now. This is hell in your inbox every Monday morning. Sign up for the That Was Hell email newsletter. Start every week listening to This Is Hell. Maybe you're enjoying your favorite beverage and you knew This Is Hell coffee mug or browsing through a book we gave you for dropping by This Is Hell office hours. Uh, Suddenly, you click on your inbox, and just like that, you've got links to this week's entire This Is Hell, all the separate interviews, correspondence reports, organized and ready for your listening and sharing pleasure. Sign up for the That Was Hell email newsletter at thisishell.com and start your week by listening to and sharing This Is Hell. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby. Gory, rotten history in 1963, 55 years ago, two Italian army soldiers and five officers of the nation's paramilitary police arrived in Ciculli, Sicily, a suburb of Palermo, in response to an anonymous phone call about a car bomb. As the men attempted to defuse the device, it deteriorated, killing them, or detonated, sorry, killing them all because if it didn't, it wouldn't be rotten history. The bomb had been intended for Salvatore Greco, a local mafia boss who, among other things, had made a fortune smuggling contraband cigarettes into Italy and shipping illegal narcotics to North America, because I'm assuming calling them black market cigarettes is racist, right? And that's not a joke, seriously. 
we should say contraband instead of black market, shouldn't we? I mean, I assume black market has some racist overtones. I could be wrong. Who knows? But it just doesn't sound quite right. So I'm going to go with contraband instead. Local mafia boss Greco had become entangled in a deadly mob war triggered by an argument between rival families over a short-weighted shipment of heroin. And you do not want to be in the middle of a family fight over heroin. Things get ugly real fast. Your mom is suddenly describing how painful it was to give birth to you without heroin. Your dad starts asking when you're going to go get a job so you can get more heroin. Ugh, heroin is the worst. Greco's reputed associates included not only prominent businessmen, but the mayor of Palermo and other politicians of Italy's Christian Democratic Party. The car bomb explosion sparked a massive police crackdown that led to the arrests of around 1,200 mafosi, some of whom spent years in jail. But Greco managed to elude the police and flee to Venezuela, where he eventually established a business connection with the New York-based Gambino crime family. So Greco misses a bomb that kills cops, eludes a crackdown that happened because of the bomb that killed the cops, ends up in Venezuela and opens up shop with the Gambinos. Okay. In a completely unrelated note, June 30th, 1963, on the same day, is also the birthday of Swedish guitarist and songwriter Ingve Malmsteen. In a more unrelated point, in the 1980s, after not getting my hair cut for a couple of years, my at-the-time 65-year-old mom asked me, Who are you trying to look like? Ingve Malmsteen? This led to a succession of articles mailed to me from my mom about whatever Ingve Malmsteen was up to. To be clear, I have no interest in Ingve Malmsteen or his music. I never mentioned Ingve Malmsteen to my mother. And I have absolutely no idea what caused my mother's obsession with Ingve Malmsteen. In Rotten History 1971, 47 years ago, the Soviet spacecraft Soyuz 11 returned to Earth carrying three men who had just broken an endurance record, spending 26 days in orbit aboard Salyut, the world's first space station. It was the Soviet Union's answer to the American Apollo 11 moon landing of two years earlier. And in the USSR, the cosmonauts Georgi Dobrovolsky, Vladislav Volkov, and Viktor Patsayev had become familiar to millions of people through their nightly video transmissions carried live on Soviet TV. So if the U.S. lands people on the moon, in response, the Soviets put up a space station and set the record for longest time in space. Gotta say, landing someone on the moon seems cooler, but I bet the space station thing is more difficult. The Soyuz came down as on its parachute and made a perfect touchdown on a wheat field in Kazakhstan. Again, perfect touchdown in a wheat field, because nothing says perfect spacecraft touchdown like it landing in a wheat field. But when the helicopter rescue team opened the hatch, they found that all three cosm cosmonauts were dead. So not so perfect of a wheat field touchdown. It was later determined that just as the men began their descent from orbit, a vent valve in the Soyuz had opened prematurely so that all the air leaked out into space. Since the cosmonauts were wearing no pressure suits to save weight, they suffocated. Their death would have been quick within a minute, but horribly painful as their eardrums broke, down, broke open, their internal organs exploded, and the blood boiled in their chest cavities. Again, this is rotten history, so there are... These are the kind of grisly details one should expect. An investigation later revealed a crucial design flaw in the Soyuz. Really? The cosmonauts could have closed the errant valve manually with a crank 
but it would have taken at least 52 seconds, much too long to prevent a deadly situation. Yeah, having to depend on a crank for your survival on a spaceship? Probably a design flaw. But hey, the stupid Cold War that forced both the stupid U.S. and the stupid Soviets into making stupid decisions about their space agencies, rushing projects into space that were not yet ready, ending with deadly, stupid results, sounds just about right for the stupid Cold War and its stupid mentality. Ah, the stupid old days of the Cold War. The stupid days that unfortunately far too many in leadership positions in the U.S. and Russia right now wax nostalgic about. F the Cold War. That's Rotten History and This Is Hell. You can rate This Is Hell on Facebook. So far, 150 listeners have. And 148 gave us the highest rating possible, 5 out of 5 stars. We have one review that gives us a single star, claiming we are in cahoots, cahoots, I say, with Vladimir Putin. And a four-star review doubting This Is Hell is God's favorite radio show. We got four more five-star reviews with comments from listeners this week. Joanne gave us five stars and writes, The Thinking Person's Radio Show, a rarity in our increasingly corporatized and homogenized radio landscape in search of a lowest common denominator. I cannot recommend this show highly enough, and my life is a little bit richer for having found it. Plagiarized, thank you. That was kind of an odd comment. It did sound kind of familiar. Now all I have to do is figure out where Joanne plagiarized that comment so I can thank the original author. Thanks, Joanne, for creating work for me so I can be polite and have the proper etiquette. And thanks for the five stars. George also gave five stars on Facebook, writing, Excellent show. I really love the variety of guests. Your ideas always challenge me. Also, you give me much of my reading list. I recommend the June 23rd show, that's last week's show, just a fabulous lineup of interviews. Keep up the great work on This Is Hell. George is referring to last Saturday's show featuring Daniel Bessner on how everybody gets George Soros wrong. I got in quite a debate with somebody about that uh, podcast or about the that interview this week because uh, they said that they didn't have to listen to it. They knew what it would say. Mm, that's always a great way to start an argument. Uh, that interview or that show also featured our Assad Haider interview on identity politics that Facebook wouldn't allow us to boost as it was deemed too political. However, an announcement that we then posted saying that Facebook would not allow us to boost the Assad Haider interview, Facebook then suggested that we boost that interview or that post. So the whole thing was very catch-22. Orwellian confusion. Thomas Frank was also on that show, and he told us how we got to Trump and how Tom told us uh, Trump would would be happening since uh, he started appearing on This Is Hell back in the past century. Philip Matera was also on the show that George recommends from last week that was about corporate wage theft, and Jeff Dorchin's Moment of Truth was the third chapter of his series on the Holocaust, Slavery, and Kanye. So yeah, if you want to introduce someone to This Is Hell, last week's, the June 23rd show with Assad Hyder, Daniel Bessner, Jeff Dorchin, Thomas Frank, Philip Matera, that is a great place to start. Jenny also gives us five stars on Facebook as well, writing, This Is Hell is the best and most necessary podcast of our time. Smart Yes, This Is Hell is absolutely necessary. And if you believe This Is Hell is absolutely necessary, 
please show your support by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com. Finally, we received yet another five-star rating for This Is Hell on Facebook from Francisco, who writes that This Is Hell is one of my favorites. One of my goals in life is to be a guest on This Is Hell. Chuck, I would love to talk to you about international finance and neocolonialism in West Africa. Thanks for all the great interviews over the years. Okie doke, Francisco. Let's do that. I'd love to learn about international finance and neocolonialism in West Africa. Sounds like a real hoot. And you can rate This Is Hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. This week's question from hell is, when the next fall happens, where are you pillaging first? When the next fall happens, where are you pillaging first? All replies read on air during the third hour of this week's This Is Hell. Our favorite one's a copy of Catherine Nixie's book, which we will be featuring in the next hour of This Is Hell on today's show. The Darkening Age, The Christian Destruction of the Classical World is Catherine's book's title. Again, the question from Al is, when the next fall happens, where are you pillaging first? Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Listen during the next hour of this week's show to hear all of the responses and to find out if you've won. If you want to hear This Is Hell over the air on your local radio station, assuming you still have one, and impose our evil content upon your innocent neighbors, email us your local radio station's call letters to chuck at thisishell.com. Chuck at thisishell.com. And some of you are already suggesting, suggesting local stations for us to include in our burgeoning Not the Media Network. Again, if you want to hear us on your favorite local station, email us the call letters to chuck at thisishell.com, or better yet, email your local station and tell them why your source for anti-social media is This Is Hell. We're having a little bit of a delay here with uh, Laura Carlson, and we'll be getting to her in just a few minutes. But why don't we go into listener feedback while we're waiting for Laura. Alrighty, let's go to the first one here. Oh, here it is. Our first piece of listener feedback is a message we received via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio, and it is from Jason F., who writes, Are you guys going to be at office hours on Wednesday, July 4th? We're coming into town for the International Socialist Organization Socialism Conference that week, and it would be awesome to visit and buy you a drink at Carrie's. That would be awesome. Please do come by and buy me a beer at Carrie's. But no, we're not having office hours this Wednesday. We're moving up this week's This Is Hell office hours at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, to Tuesday, July 3rd. Tuesday, July 3rd. One time only. We're doing it on Tuesday this week to accommodate listeners who normally cannot join us as they work the day following office hours. So office hours happens this week from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. on Tuesday, July 3rd at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. It's kind of like a meet and greet but more like a think and drink. And everyone who drops by gets This Is Hell subvertising stickers and free show-related books. Our first email this week to chuck at thisishell.com is from Dave, who has a guest suggestion. And please send your guest suggestions in, as we will be doing an all-listener-suggested show in the very near future and hope to do several more this year. 
If we choose your suggested guest, we'll send you some This Is Hell subvertising stickers so you can subvert public advertising with the words This Is Hell. Dave writes, Hi Chuck, I'm a newer listener and I love the show. Your interviews have opened my ears to issues that I, or opened my eyes to issues that I was never, ever made aware of. Ears would be better though. I have a guest suggestion for you that doesn't seem to be your usual style of guest. I think Jason Pargin, P-A-R-G-I-N, who writes and is the executive editor of Cracked.com under the name David Wong, would be an interesting and engaging guest. For an example of his insights, you can read his article, How Half of America Lost Its Effing Mind, at Cracked.com. Thank you for doing what you do. Dave, who writes from McKeesport, PA. Pargin argues the whole Trump thing is because of the rural urban disconnect and divide, how people have lost their voice in governance and in our culture, and a-holes are heroes. That's make kind of makes sense. So we'll look into that, Dave. Maybe Mr. Pargin will be a guest on an upcoming episode of This Is Hell. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, Mexico's presidential election previewed, assuming that there will be one and it will be free, fair, and safe from foreign interference by its ruling elite at home and that annoying neighbor to the north. Australia's indefinite detention of immigrants and asylum seekers on an island located outside of their own nation's laws may be the future of U.S. immigration policy under Trump. Christianity didn't defeat the classical world. Intellectually, Christianity destroyed the classical world and all its civilization's advances. Hashtag thanks, Christianity. Freedom is at war with the conservative view of capitalism, which opposes competition and ignores the power of money. And Jeff is appalled by Scrotus during a moment of truth, not to be confused with the late 80s, early 90s San Francisco techno-rock band Grotus, which had umlauts over all of the letters except for the O. In other words, umlauts over every letter except for the letter that could use an umlaut. I still don't know what Scrotus is. All that plus listener feedback, we'll do more of that. What Alex has been up to on social media, we will tell you what's on this week's exclusive podcast for Patreon patrons of This Is Hell, which you can hear right now by signing up as a supporter on Patreon. The Question From Hell, a whole bunch of people we want to thank for supporting This Is Hell and sharing the show online. Maybe we'll get to twist off knowledge, but I always doubt that. I'll be reminding you over and over again that This Is Hell office hours happen this Tuesday this week instead of Wednesday. And I'll be reminding you over and over again of our upcoming This Is Hell anniversary and listener appreciation party and art show happening in three weeks on Saturday, July 21st at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago's Little India Chai Town neighborhood from 3 p.m. until you leave with music, art, food, raffle. And of course, we're going to be telling you later on on this morning's show what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. Alternative to Alternative Radio, independent from independent media, this is hell. Tomorrow, Mexico decides who will be their president for the next six years. And considering the power of the presidency in Mexico, tomorrow's vote is a real big deal. Let's just hope it is free and fair and survives interference from Mexico's ruling elite and their allies in the United States. Here to give us a preview of tomorrow's presidential election in Mexico, Laura Carlson is director of the Americas Program for the Center for International Policy in Mexico City and advisor for Just Associates. Welcome back to This Is How, Laura. 
Thanks very much. Always a pleasure. Always great to hear your, uh, your voice. Uh, Laura is our correspondent in Mexico, and you may remember the last time she was on in March. Uh, reporting on an all-women's meeting she attended that was hosted by the Zapatista in the mountains of Chiapas, which now seems like years ago, even though it was only a few months ago. <laughs> in your Counterpunch article that you have written for the print edition of Counterpunch, it's entitled, Mexicans Want Change, But Will the System Let Them? You write that Mexico will soon have a new president as millions of Mexicans prepare for what they hope will be a new era. A large part of the ruling class on both sides of the border is nervously trying to figure out a way to avoid or co-opt the results of the popular vote. Why do you see the potential for possibly a stolen election? First of all, because of Mexican history. There have been two elections stolen since I've lived here, just over 30 years. That's a major thing. We're talking about 12 years in which the country actually was ruled by an individual who did not win the popular vote. In 1998, when I'd just recently gotten here, uh, there was an unexpected break within the ruling party that had, that eventually was in power for 71 years. So elections have always been, it's kind of important to mention this, because it had a ruling party that really didn't permit competition, elections have, also, have, have been, for Mexico's history, most of it, you know, a kind of a farce. It was just a ritual that they went through to perpetuate themselves in power, and they had a number of mechanisms. First of all, there was a legal structure that almost prohibited real competition, and then that began to loosen up, and they went into a number of mechanisms to still assure that they would be kept in power. So in that year, some people split off from the ruling party and put forth another candidate uh, who actually won the election. But as the count went on, it became obvious that Cuauhtémoc Cardenas was going to win in 88. Uh, they, uh, they pulled down the count. They said the system had crashed. And lo and behold, when the system came back up, uh, Cuauhtémoc Cardenas had lost to the pre-candidate. And then in 2006, it happened in a very similar way, but then with a little more technological sophistication, there was a clear winning trend for the current candidate, Andres Manuel López Obrador, by about two in the morning, you know, everyone's glued to their television set and the results coming in. And about two in the morning, all of a sudden, that trend reversed completely. And by the time they came out with the results, Felipe Calderón of the of the Conservative Party had won by half a percentage point, and they refused to open the votes and do any type of a recount that would clarify people's obvious doubts concerning that. There was huge demonstrations. So that's our history. And the practices that they've developed to carry out fraud, you know, they carry them. They, it just, we just saw it in the, in the state of Mexico, a very important state, too, where they, again, um, you know, they pulled out all the stops in terms of they even threw pig's heads on candidate, opposition candidates' doorsteps to try to intimidate them, literally mafia-style, uh, to, to resign. They, they, they're threatening phone calls. Uh, you know, there's a whole barrage of methods of fraud that, in fact, now in these elections as observers, I'm coordinating, we're coordinating a group of observers through the uh, network of scholars and citizens for democracy in Mexico. So these kinds of reports have already been coming in for a while. It's out there, but 
The big difference is in this case, Lopez Obrador has an advantage of 20 to 30 points. So it's a little harder to steal an election like that. So why would uh, the ruling class on both sides of the border not want Obrador or his national regeneration movement, his coalition with the Labor Party and Social and Counterparty Coalition, uh, why would they not want them in power? First of all, because they want to conserve power themselves. Um, and as you mentioned at the beginning of the show, presidential power is even greater in Mexico because it's known as a presidential system. But then let's look at who Andres López Obrador is because he has uh, been called left, center-left, populist, firebrand, radical, messiah. <laughs> There's a whole vocabulary that the U.S. press and the national press uses. And uh, his platform basically calls for more social programs that will be funded by getting rid of corruption and what he calls the privileges given to the mafia in power and to the super-rich within the country. The question of inequality, which has been exacerbated under the neoliberal model and with NASA here in Mexico, has been a big issue. There's a lot of popular resentment against a handful of individuals who are mega-billionaires on the Forbes list, and the fact that over half the population lives in poverty. Many, especially indigenous peoples and other vulnerable sectors in extreme poverty. And the distribution of wealth is extremely skewed in the country. And that's built up a resentment. It's built up a resentment that the real wage has actually fallen uh, and to attract foreign investment under this export-oriented model. And people are having a hard time getting by. So when he comes out and says he will guarantee universal pensions for the elderly, will double the minimum wage, um, and have the government play a bigger role in redistributing wealth. You know, again, not really radical programs, but it's it's a new concept and it's a breath of fresh air and great news for many, many people as they see in that a hope to in, to increase their own well-being and to increase injustice and the inequality that exists in the country. He's also said that he's going to analyze and change the security policy, which war on drugs, started by the conservative government of Felipe Calderón and promoted and supported by the United States government under an aid package called the Merida Initiative. He has resolved, He said the war on drugs hasn't worked. In fact, most people say that because it's so obvious. A little bit of noise here for a minute. We've also got the World Cup going, and so there might suddenly be a lot of cheering and, you know, goal. But anyway, so he has talked a lot about that kind of thing, too. Um, the need to stop this repressive, militarized model of fighting organized crime and begin to look at the root causes. Poverty. Um, the same kind of inequality, lack of educational opportunities, lack of opportunities for small farmers who are then, you know, forced into growing poppy or, or marijuana crops. So uh, these, are, these are the proposals. They're not like, um, as I say, they're really not radical, but they're very different from what we have now. And this whole election is about a, uh, a complete rejection of the status quo. 
But at the same time, Lopez Obrador uh, has backed off on some of his past campaign stances, like uh, he is no longer as anti-NAFTA as he was in the past. He's saying that uh, the his government would not just end NAFTA as it had in the past, uh, as he'd argued in the past. And also, he is not for the no longer for the nationalization of oil companies that had been privatized under previous administrations. So to what degree has he moved to the center? Because I'm concerned that what's going to happen to him, and as you point out in your article, is the same problem that Lula had in Brazil, where he became too conciliatory to the neoliberal right, and it undermined his presidency. Well, that's a really good question, and it's a question that's kind of up in the air right now. I mean, there's some of those positions that may have taken not to rock the boat during the election because the opposition is fierce. We're getting uh, phone calls on our phones. They've gotten the list of almost everybody in the country. Um, there's there's threatening calls. There's calls there are, you know, the calls against, all, all of them are against Lopez Obrador. And so he has, there's a number of measures that might be oriented towards that and could possibly change under a presidency, but there's also a very clear move to the center to create a broader base, which perhaps is partly in, you know, responsible for this much greater lead that he has now, especially among the middle class. He's always had the very strong lead and, and nucleus of support among the poor and that he didn't have in some of those other elections. He has some prominent businessmen that have come in now, what happens after that? The renegotiation of physical, <laughs> renegotiation of NAFTA is is still ongoing. And so, what he said is, we're going to renegotiate in our terms. He actually said he wanted to involve Central America as well. He said he wants to bring immigrationists in. So there's some, even though he's not saying he's pulling out, you know, there's some evidence that he's looking at some pretty major changes. And then also bringing the the privatization of oil, which happened under the structural reforms of Peña Nieto, you know, bringing that to a national consultation and seeing what's going to be done. There's a, there's a lot of risks involved in his presidency, and he'll be up against a lot of obstacles. So there's, first of all, the uncertainty of what does he really want to do and how much is he willing to transform the society. And second of all, there's the uncertainty of how much will they let him. Like it says in the article, how much will he, how much margin will he have to actually carry out some of the more fundamental or structural uh, changes there? But at the same time, as you point as you point out in your article, uh, and you were mentioning earlier, and I mentioned earlier, the presidency within Mexico has a great deal of po- power, institutional power. So. AMLO, one of the things that Obrador is campaigning on is an anti-corruption platform. Does that anti-corruption platform include weakening the power of the presidency? Could Obrador weaken the power of the presidency while in office? There aren't specific proposals to actually weaken the power of the presidency, except for the ones that have to do with the kind of discretionary power, you know, in terms of legislative changes. It's more like um, uh, um, we don't know what he would do with that. But what he is talking about a lot is uh, reducing the economic benefits to the presidency. He's talking about getting rid of these multi-million 
dollar uh, pension to former presidents. He's saying he's going to turn the presidential residence, you know, a lavish, uh, large estate in the middle of Mexico City into a national museum and he, and continue to live at his modest modest house. He's going to sell the presidential jet to Donald Trump, he says. It's like one of the most expensive presidential jets in the entire world. <laughs> so watch out, U.S. taxpayers there, you know. Um, and so he's talking about an austere presidency that's very different in terms of it, of how it handles national resources. Uh, and it remains to be seen what kinds of other other kind of political changes he could make that would actually reduce the power, except for reducing the illegitimate power that the presidency has now. And of course, in all of this, a major factor that we still don't know is what kind of control he'll have over the Congress. It was first assumed that Morena, the National Regeneration Party that he founded and he's in, that he's the candidate of, would really would not be able to take control of the legislature. But now it's overwhelming the support for that party. I went to the the rally, the closing rally, because campaign activities were suspended on the 27th, and they filled the stadium of over 100,000 people with uh, a tremendous level of support. And now some of the polls are coming out saying that he may indeed have control over uh, the legislature or perhaps lower house. So that would make a huge difference as well in what they can do. Just a couple more questions for you, Laura. Uh, you write that the majority of Mexicans are fed up with the inertia of a system that keeps half the population in poverty while bloating global billionaires. Mexico adopted the neoliberal model whole hog in the late 80s and export-oriented economy, transnational corporate production, unregulated financial mobility without labor mobility, militarization, environmental exploitation and destruction, state support for foreign investors while withdrawing from uh, national development and rock-bottom wages. The minimum is set at about $4 a day, depending on the exchange rate. Unregulated Mm -hmm. financial mobility without labor mobility. Is that what we see in conflict at the U.S.-Mexico border right now, Laura? Can financial mobility not happen without labor mobility? And when it does, it leads to conflict. Is that what we are seeing as the result of neoliberalism? Absolutely. And of course, immigration is a huge issue in all this, although they don't tend to talk about it nearly often enough. But that's the key point. I mean, what they did in NAFTA and other free trade agreements when they liberalized capital, the movement of capital and did not, and did not create you know, these mechanisms for labor mobility, which is human rights, is they created a captive and it, it, a captive labor force that by criminalizing it could be super exploited. And uh, so the, and, and then at the same time, you know, the countries that they're coming from um, are being squeezed so hard for their own resources and uh, militarized for hegemonic reasons that they're expelling huge numbers of people. So these people, these families that we we see on the border, they get them coming and going. You know, they're just completely vulnerable on all fronts, and the system was set up that way on purpose. 
with us why there can't be, you know, there's never been any success in immigration reform that everybody always says there has to be immigration reform and there's never any success. Well, there's a reason for that. There are people who are benefiting more concretely from the tragedy of these of these families in the United States and also in their in their countries of origin. Um, until it's recognized that this is a, a structural problem that has to do with the way that economies and the international financial and economic regime has been set up, and we go to the roots of how we're creating these tragedies every single day, the problem really can't be solved, and it's just it's just so profoundly unfair. Well, uh, Lopez Obrador may not, may have backed off from uh, saying that he's going to completely abandon NAFTA, or at least to some degree he may have, but President Donald Trump has not. How good would it be for the people of Mexico if Donald Trump actually did abandon NAFTA? That's a really tough question now, because even the people who have historically, you know, it's over 20 years, so even the people who have historically uh, rejected the agreement and the terms are, are very, very unfair and, and unequal for Mexico. But not it's not a question of one country against each other, really. It's the terms are very unequal for um, small producers, for small farmers, for workers. Obviously, they're not even included. Their rights aren't even included in the agreement. And, uh, and provides all these privileges for the large transnational companies. That's really the the pattern of NAFTA much more than did the United States win or did Mexico win. It's a cross-border contract for privileges for transnational corporations. But after 20 years of kind of orienting the Mexican economy around this model, to pull out overnight could be problematic. You know, it'd be it'd be a shock to the system, and shocks are always difficult to handle. Um, so they're looking at how the campesino sector, the poor peasant farmer sector, they're the only ones that have come out and said, you know, we could do this, and it, we do want to take agriculture out of the free trade agreement. And they've said that consistently and have a plan create uh, agriculture as a national development strategic sector. The other sectors would have to start looking at ways to go out. But even the government has said, if Donald Trump pulls out tomorrow, we can handle this. And and it's probably true, because what happens is you fall back to WTO rules. Uh, The sectors that are so integrated now, they're going to find a way to work it out. So, so it's not impossible. It's a it's a real complicated scenario, and that's why it's very difficult at this point to just look at it and say NAFTA yes or no. But in the long run, if Donald Trump pulled out and Lopez Obrador won, and there was a real implementation of some of the things he's been talking about, like stimulating the domestic economy. In the first place, by ways raising, excuse me, by raising wages, and then uh, providing support to critical and strategic sectors. If if that happened, in even the medium term, Mexico would have a much more solid and certainly much more equitable economy.
Laura, it's always great hearing your voice. Laura Carlson is our correspondent in Mexico. She is also the director of the America's Program for the Center for International Policy. She has an article in the print edition of Counterpunch, Mexicans Want Change, But Will the System Let Them? You can find out more about the print edition of Counterpunch by going to their website, counterpunch.org. And you can follow Laura on Twitter at Laura E. Carlson. That's S-E-N. Thank you so much for being back on our show, Laura. Thank you. And then our website is www.americas.org. Americas.org. I almost said the old one again. Americas.org. Thank you for being on our show again, Laura. Thank you. Truly revolting radio. This is Hell, Australia's Immigrant and Asylum Seeker. Uh, indefinite detention camps on an island in the South Pacific outside of the jurisdiction of Australian law that have been around for about 17 years and are riddled with abuse just may be the model for the future of Trump's immigration policy back here in the States. We'll find out what Australia's immigration policies are up to on the island of Nauru when we talk to political scientist Ed Bermilla, who wrote the Baffler article, Out of Sight, Out of Our Minds. As the American detainee crisis deepens, Australia's own immigration catastrophe points to a bleaker future. Ed is an assistant professor of political science at Bradley University, and he hosts the the podcast Mass for Shut-Ins. Let's get back to more listener feedback. We received yet another guest suggestion. This one is from Saul. Hi, Chuck. Victor Walsh's new book, Red Green Revolution, The Politics and Technology of Eco-Socialism, has just come out. Victor would be an amazing guest on This Is Hell, and my mother would really appreciate it if you interviewed him. Thanks for your work, Saul. Oh, Saul, Saul, Saul. It's always about your mother, isn't it? I looked up the book, and it was included in a list called 12 New Books for Eco-Socialists, which was posted at the Australian Green Left Weekly news site this week by past This Is Hell guest Ian Angus. Ian was on our show back in 2011 to talk about the book he co-authored, Too Many People, Population, Immigration, and the Environmental Crisis, where he talks about the population explosion not really being an issue. Ian's list includes a couple of books we have already featured on This Is Hell this year. The Divide, Global Inequality from Conquest to uh, Free by Jason Hickel and uh, Against the Grain, A Deep History of the Early Estates by James C. Scott. But yes, we'll look into Victor Wallace's new book, Red Green Revolution, The Politics and Technology of Eco-Socialism. And we're going to look into all the books on Ian's list of 12 new books for eco-socialists that appeared this week at the Australian Green Left Weekly news site. So thank you very much, Saul, for your suggestion, because we wouldn't have found another 10 suggestions if it wasn't for you. Tom also has another guest suggestion. Tom writes, hi, Chuck. Hi, Alex. Does hell have a silver lining? I happened upon a lecture by Chris D. Thomas, who has a unique perspective about climate change that I hadn't heard anywhere else before. Along with the mass extinction we may be initiating, there is a flowering of biodiversity evolving in the new niches created by the changes in habitat and loss of species. Maybe you'd consider interviewing him about his 2017 book, Inheritors of the Earth, How Nature is Thriving in an Age of Extinction, that argues human activity has irreversibly changed the natural environment. But the news isn't all bad. Sure, sure, Tom, but... Is this book hellish enough for This Is Hell? On the other hand, maybe we should start doing a 
Silver lining interview every so often. Nah, this is hell. Speaking of silver linings, we got a guest suggestion from John who writes, Hi Chuck, attached is a copy of our forthcoming report, The Crisis Next Time, planning for public ownership as an alternative to corporate bank bailouts to be released on July 2nd by our research director, Thomas Hanna, at the Democracy Collaborative. Cheers, John. Yeah, I I remember the talk of public ownership of banks immediately following the financial collapse of 2008. Those are the days. Ah, those are those great old days. Sure, I'll check out your report on public ownership of banks. Not that public ownership of banks will ever happen. Ever. But sure, why not? We'll get back into some listener feedback in just a little bit. This is Hell, and this week's question from Hell is, when the next fall happens, where are you pillaging first? When the next fall happens... Where are you pillaging first? All replies read on air during the next hour of this week's This Is Hell. Our favorite wins a copy of Catherine Nixie's book, which we are also featuring the next hour of this week's This Is Hell, The Darkening Age, The Christian Destruction of the Classical World. Again, the question from hell is, when the next fall happens, where are you pillaging first? Leave your response right now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell... Australia's indefinite detention of immigrants and asylum seekers on an island located outside of their own nation's laws may be the future of U.S. immigration policy under Trump. Christianity didn't defeat the classical world intellectually. Christianity destroyed the classical world and all its civilizations and advances. Hashtag thanks Christianity. Freedom is at war with the conservative view of capitalism, which opposes competition and ignores the power of money. And Jeff is appalled by scrotus, whatever that means, during a moment of truth. All that plus, we'll find out what Alex has been up to on social media. Uh, we'll talk about this week's exclusive podcast for Patreon patrons of This Is Hell. We'll talk, give you the question from hell, the responses to all the questions from hell. Uh, a whole bunch of people we want to thank for supporting This Is Hell and sharing the show online. I'll be reminding you over and over again of our upcoming This Is Hell anniversary and listener appreciation party and art show happening in three weeks on Saturday, July 21st at Carrie's Lounge. 2251 West Devon from 3 p.m. until you leave. Music, art, food, raffle, a whole bunch of stuff. And we'll be telling you what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. Yes, another end of the world is possible. This is hell. The future of Trump's horrific immigration policy might be in Australia's current and even more horrific immigration policy. Here to tell us what's happening on the South Pacific island of Nauru, and how what's taking place there may come to the U.S. real soon. Political scientist Ed Bermilla wrote the Baffler article, Out of Sight, Out of Our Minds, as the American detainee crisis deepens. Australia's own immigration catastrophe points to a bleaker future. Welcome to This Is Hell, Ed. Hi, nice to be here Ed is in an, hell. <laughs> Ed is an assistant professor of political science at Bradley University. He hosts the Mass for Shut-Ins podcast, writes frequently at ginandtacos.com. You can follow Ed on Twitter at gin underscore and underscore tacos. So let's just start. You write about Nauru, side of the Nauru Regional Processing Center, which you describe as a place for Australia to stash thousands of would-be immigrants and asylum seekers they very much did not want on Australian soil. But you start with a brief history of Nauru, uh, writing that the tiny Pacific island nation of Nauru, all 8.1 square miles of it, used to be a pile of crap. That is a pile of very valuable phosphate-rich seabird guano. That explains why a tiny speck in the middle of nowhere 
was fought over and colonized by the Germans, then Australia and New Zealand, joint uh, hall monitors of a League of Nations mandate, then the Japanese, then the British. When it achieved independence in 1968, it was better positioned for the future than most European colonies in the Pacific because the phosphate reserves were not yet depleted. More commonly, the UK would grant independence immediately after the last phosphates were mined, as in Kiribati in 1979. And some cynics have suggested that such mining, such timing was not entirely coincidental. Did Britain take all the wealth from Nauru and then grant Nauru independence? Uh, that was commonly what they did with their Pacific Island colonies. You know, you mine all the, the guano when it's gone, then you say, hey, by the way, we've decided it's time for you guys to get independence. But I think the uh, experiment or um, what they're doing right now, the arrangement they have with Australia is proof that, you know, in a capitalist system, you're never really out of resources as long as you're willing to host a prison, um, because Australia is paying them quite handsomely to uh, stash away some of their would-be asylum seekers and immigrants and everything. So this is an arrangement that, you know, if not Nauru, it would have been somewhere else. You know, just go, go down the road and find the next poorest country, and eventually you'll find someone who's willing to open up an outdoor prison in exchange for however much money Australia is paying them. So how dependent, then, is Nauru on holding thousands of would-be immigrants and asylum seekers that are trying to get to Australia? Well, I think their second biggest source of revenue beyond this is, I don't know, selling postage stamps to collectors online. I mean, it's, it's really a very tiny country. Uh, they have, unlike a lot of places in the Pacific, they can't really pitch tourism. They, you know, they're too remote, too far from everything else, and they don't have the kinds of things that a, you know, big luxury resort hotels and things like that. I mean, eight square miles is the whole island, and most of it looks like the surface of the moon from the, you know, century of mining. So they are really, I think, uh, married to what they've become in this relationship with Australia. You know, other than this, they're dependent on essentially foreign aid. So, How bad would things get for Nauru if the right thing happened? That is, the immigrants and asylum seekers were given permanent residence somewhere other than Nauru. Well, they would be in the same position that any other country around the world that's desperately poor would be. Uh, they'd be reliant on international, you know, NGOs and, uh, you know, nonprofits and things like that, uh, because they really don't have any ability to generate kind of indigenous industry. Um, they could, uh, you know, maybe try developing their fishing industry a little bit more, but uh, that's that's about all that they could do. And, uh, you know, that's that's plenty competitive. So I think the future would be fairly bleak for them if they weren't uh, able to generate income this way. You write that legally, if migrants could be intercepted at sea and prevented from setting foot in Australia proper, the government could maintain legal cover for denying them a slew of rights and privileges. Is the Australian government then engaged in a process to circumvent Australian law in order to deny rights to immigrants and asylum seekers? Well, as they see it, no, uh, but they are certainly aggressive about intercepting. You know, they're getting their immigration mostly by sea, right? Uh, people are getting to Indonesia or Papua New Guinea. And, you know, in many cases, in whatever they can get to float, you know, really unsafe kind of uh, boats and things like that, they will pile huge numbers of people in and try to reach the Australian mainland. Um, they can legally request asylum once they set foot in Australia, 
So it's sort of like back in the 90s when the United States had that wet foot, dry foot policy. You know, if you if you made it to part of the United States, then you could uh, uh, claim asylum. But if somehow you could be intercepted at sea or whatever, then they could uh, legally deny you that claim. So Australia is putting a lot of effort into patrolling the northern part of the country's territorial waters and making sure that they get these uh, convoys of migrants that are coming by water before they can reach uh, the northern part of the continent. And you've written, you've written that this, uh, in exchange for de- detaining uh, this most inconvenient population indefinitely, Nauru received a steady and valuable influx of Australian dollars. Yep. Indefinitely. Does Australia, yeah. Nauru, or anyone have any plans for these immigrants and asylum seekers to ever live anywhere else? Well, they do eventually get their application for asylum processed. Um, in very few cases are those applications approved. Um, so they're basically put in this gray area. It's kind of a holding pattern for however long Australia deems it takes to process these applications. And then most of them are denied and then sent back um, to whatever country of origin they came from. Um, In a lot of cases, the migrants then will claim reasonably that they have compelling reasons not to go back where they, uh, you know, their, their country of origin. And then we really get into the gray area of, okay, we're not letting you into Australia you're not going back to your country of origin or, you know, most recent origin or citizenship, rather. So what now? You're just kind of living in this legal limbo, right? And for non-citizens, Australia, like any other country, uh, has, you know, it's really a legal gray area when you're holding people who aren't citizens of your country, who aren't maybe, you know, uh, these are close to being stateless people, right? They are Uh, sort of relinquishing their citizenship of the countries they've come from, but they're not being accepted into Australia. And the numbers add up quickly, right? So we put people, or Australia's been putting people in these detention centers or processing centers. And, you know, the, the one of the points I tried to make in the article is, in the United States, we're getting vastly larger numbers of people coming here. Like in Australia, if you add all their processing centers together, we're talking about less than 8,000 people. The United States probably gets eight to 10,000 people a month, um, if not more than that, coming to uh, you know the border to request asylum or to try to immigrate. And if the White House's policy is really going to be to detain all of these people and hold them in open-air tents or whatever... You know, the conservative estimates are by Labor Day, we're going to have 30,000 children alone and over 100,000 people that we're going to need to put somewhere. Right. So uh, the, the reason that I went to Australia as the metaphor is that they have proven that these. If you really are going to commit to a zero tolerance thing where you're not going to let people in, but you're going to detain them, uh, we're going to be detaining a very large number of people very quickly. And apparently for a very long time, as you point out, this uh, the detention center in Nauru that opened up in 2001, shortly after the war on terror began. What are the living conditions of the immigrants and asylum seekers who are indefinitely detained outside of Australian law by the Australian government on the small Pacific island of Nauru? It's about what you would expect for people living in an open air camp. Uh, these people have very little in the way of legal rights. 
Um, I link a couple of international aid organizations in my article that have cited high levels of physical and sexual abuse uh, that have gone on in all of Australia's processing centers, because this is really uh, a population that lives in the shadows. You know, these, these are people who, because of their unclear legal status and their uh, you know, lack of resources and everything to turn to are very easy to exploit among people who would be interested in exploiting a weak and desperate population. And then I started wondering, you know, who are the people who are being held in these detention centers? And you write the island was once again rich in resources. Nauru was once again rich in resources. Only this time the minerals were the poor, the abused, the war ravaged, and the persecuted of Indonesia, Bangladesh, Afghanistan, Cambodia, and other troubled spots throughout Asia. Are yeah. the immigrants and asylum seekers in some way, in any way, the outcome of Australian foreign policy? Are they fleeing wars supported by Australia or armed by Australia, or are they the victims of economic policies that are supported, even enforced by Australia? Uh, it, it would be tough to blame Australia entirely, but there's certainly uh, plenty of refugees coming from Afghanistan and, uh, you know, Australia, along with the United States and other uh, countries have been uh, directly responsible for the deterioration of conditions in Afghanistan. Um, there are a lot of policies Australia has uh, adopted throughout its history to try to limit Asian immigration, specifically Asian immigration. Um, Australian domestic politics are, in my opinion, the closest analog for American politics anywhere in the world. Uh, they're very provincial. They're uh, they have more than a little bit of xenophobia, right? And they have been attempting to, uh, you know, throughout their history, restrict immigration from Asia by whatever means that they could uh, manage. They finally opened their borders a little bit in the late 1960s, but since then, their immigration policies have now um, been faced with a fairly large number of refugees because of a number of countries in Southeast Asia that have pretty dismal human rights records, which you can't blame directly on Australia, but countries like Myanmar, the former Burma, uh, Thailand, Singapore, etc., they all have uh, the Philippines they all have a indigenous history of treating minority populations within their own borders pretty poorly, right? So uh, the refugee stream certainly is in part due to the policies of countries like Australia and the United States, but countries in Southeast Asia, their domestic governments have contributed to the problem as well by attempting to chase off various parts of their population or, you know, uh, engaging in discriminatory policies. And on the uh, history of Australia's immigration policy, you write how uh, they actually had a policy that was called the White Australia Policy that was the law of the land until 1973. Is Australia's immigration policy and history, their record, even worse, even more racist than what we have here in the U.S.? Uh, well, that, that's a pretty dismal competition there. Uh, it's hard to say which one is worse, but like I said, I think Australian politics and American politics have some pretty strong similarities in the way we've dealt with these issues. Um, Australia in 1970, no, 1973, uh, they finally did away with the, the last vestiges of the white Australia policy, but they were really on the verge of becoming a second South Africa, kind of an international pariah. And they changed the white Australia policy under the pressure of 
uh, going the way apartheid South Africa did when they were excluded from many international organizations and kind of uh, treated like a leper, which, of course, they deserve to be treated that way for their policy. But Australia uh, had a very liberal prime minister in the early 1970s named Gough Whitlam, and he was able to convince the country, look, we need to move forward with this, or we're going to be permanently labeled a backwater and, uh, you know, a regressive country. And uh, eventually then they started to open up the policy. And uh, immigration in Australia is a big issue because they don't have a very big population. So their argument in the 1970s, or one of the reasons they had a lot of tension, was uh, the first wave of immigration into Australia was all Greek and Italian. And they're a small country, and if you get a wave of two million people from Greece and Italy coming over uh, to, to reside there, you know that's going to significantly change the overall makeup of your population. So to some extent, you can see why people would be a little uh, nervous about that, but at the same time, it's an ample country. They've got tons of resources. There's no real reason they need to be worrying about overpopulating it. So how much are the detention centers like the one on Nauru? How much does that lead to any political debate? Or is there, you know, a, a cross-party line support for that immigration party? Or is there a very vibrant pro-immigration movement within Australia that is against what's taking place on Nauru? Uh, they they are domestically uh, very split over these kinds of policies. They have a couple of political figures, uh, the most prominent of which is a kind of Trump-like figure named Pauline Hansen, who's been on the scene since the 90s. And they are uh, sort of like Steve King from Iowa, our congressman. They're, they're as far as you can go uh, toward being a white nationalist without explicitly coming out and saying, I'm a white nationalist. You know, um, their whole political life depends on bashing immigration and talking about, you know, white Australian culture and how it's going to be changed by immigration. So there is a great deal of controversy over this issue internally. You have a very pro-immigration, multicultural Australia wing. You have a fiercely nationalist, anti-immigration wing. And then, like in the United States, you have these people in the mushy center who are like, oh, immigration gives me the willies, but I also don't like the idea of, you know, these human rights uh, abuses that we're creating. So they really don't know what to do with it. And you were mentioning earlier that your concerns that this kind of policy might be incorporated into the Trump immigration policy. But are Australian-style detention camps for immigrants and asylum seekers already here in the United States? Because the group uh, Freedom of Inform- Freedom of or sorry Freedom for Immigrants new report Abuse Motivated by Hate and Bias in U.S. Immigration Detention states that since January twentieth, two thousand and seventeen, when Donald Trump became the president of the United States. Their organization has documented at least 800 complaints of abuse motivated by hate or bias in 34 immigration detention jails and prisons. So are Australian policies coming to the U.S. or are they already here? Well, we are already obviously holding large numbers of people in some kind of quote-unquote detention in a legally unclear status. Um, The point I was uh, getting at with the piece was If they really are going to stick to this look how tough we are, zero tolerance thing, the number of people being held in that situation is going to exponentially increase. So, yes, we're already and, you know, this is not new. We have been for decades. Uh, Like every country, we hold some people in, you know, 
uh, people who aren't citizens in an unclear status, whether we're trying to deport them or deciding whether or not to admit them. But here we're seeing already, okay, now they're going to open up big tent cities on military bases in the middle of the desert, which was uh, back in the late 90s, Australia's first idea. Hey, why don't we just put them all in the outback because it's empty? Uh, so, so I see some strong parallels of us going down the same path. Because once these numbers, you know, by the end of 2018, it, you know, if they have 200,000 people or whatever, that's a, that's a very large population. And eventually we're going to start asking questions like, well, is there somewhere we can put them where they won't attract as much attention? And that's how Australia ended up with Christmas Island and Nauru and a couple thousand people they paid uh, Papua New Guinea to take. And uh, it, it really just became a mess. And I could see that happening here very easily and very quickly because the numbers of people trying to get asylum in the U.S. and immigrate here are so large. So how successful have has Australia been at having this be a situation of out of sight and out of mind? Because, you know, for whatever reason, I have not seen any reporting on this here in the U.S. media. I have seen some uh, reporting on this on uh, Deutsche Welle, on France 24, BBC, CNN International. Uh, I've seen some reporting on it in The Guardian, uh, South Asia Times, but I haven't seen anything about this in the United States. So how successful is Australia at having this situation be out of sight and out of mind? Well, we don't get a lot of news about Australia, period. Uh, So in the United States, we've managed to avoid having to hear about it. Within Australia, it was a fairly successful policy at first. Um, Indigenously, there has been a movement among Australian activists to draw attention to this, and over time, it's become a very prominent issue in their domestic politics. But the idea that if you make these people who are being detained harder to access, that um, it will be harder to report on, fewer people will hear about what's going on, and eventually people might think less about it and begin, you know, move on to some other political issue and, oh, well, we're not worried about these detainees anymore. Uh, To that extent, I think they have been successful, keeping these people in very remote locations in different countries or in isolated areas of their own country uh, has been pretty successful. But since we're 15 plus years into this policy, by now, certainly it's a common issue when Australia has an election or when Uh, activists are trying to draw attention to issues. This is by now well-known within Australia. But they started this in 2001, and it took a while for the attention and notice and everything to ramp up because they're essentially hiding people. And you're right that the White House must be giddy with joy at the embarrassment of options available for a similar scheme in the United States. Which genius from the Cato Institute or will it be the Hoover Institute or maybe the American Enterprise Institute will propose rebuilding the Puerto Rican economy by turning it into our very own legally ambiguous floating prison. How good could immigration detention centers be for Puerto Rico's economy? Well, you know, I don't want to give them any ideas, but like I said, when the numbers of people that they're detaining under this quote-unquote zero tolerance starts growing, uh, you know, 100,000, 200,000, quarter of a million people is a very large number of people. And you need to detain, they see that they need to detain them somewhere. And eventually they're going to start looking around for solutions that aren't as easily accessible to anyone with a, you know, a smartphone or 
you know, major media organizations. And it would not surprise me if at some point, if they continue with this policy, that they start looking at options, you know, Puerto Rico, middle of nowhere out in the West, like uh, with Japanese internment in the Second World War, you know, pick a spot in the middle of the desert somewhere, uh, because there there is a limit to the number of people you can keep right on the border, you know, close to a large population. And it would also make me think this out of sight, out of mind situation would also make it more difficult to actually protest the immigration policies as well. One last question for you. We've been speaking with uh, political scientist Ed Bermilla, who wrote the Baffler article, Out of Sight, Out of Our Minds, as the American detainee crisis deepens, Australia's own immigration catastrophe points to a bleaker future. He's an assistant professor of political science at Bradley University and hosts the podcast Mass for Shut-Ins, Mass for Shut-Ins. You can uh, read his work at ginandtacos.com, and you can follow Ed on Twitter at gin underscore and underscore tacos. So last question for each one of our guests is the question from hell. Question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. With the potential for mass immigration increasing due to climate change, what do these immigration policies portend? Do you see in the future a global system of out-of-sight, out-of-mind immigration and asylum-seeker detention centers? Uh, I think the European Union and the United States are both moving in a direction right now where they're simply going to start sending more people back to whatever their most recent point was. I think in Europe in particular, there's a great deal of trepidation in a lot of countries about immigration from the Middle East and Turkey. Uh, In the United States, we focus all of our panic and enmity on Mexico and Central America. And eventually, the solution is going to be, it's too expensive and complicated to hold these massive numbers of people. Let's just start putting them on planes and boats and pushing them back in whatever direction they came from and let them fend for themselves is uh, most likely to be the outcome in the long term. Ed, on that very, very happy note, I really appreciate you being on our show, and people should check out your podcast. Again, you can find out more about Ed by going to ginandtacos.com. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you. This is Hell, where we put people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible, horrible business model. Christianity didn't win some civil debate proving its intellectual superiority over the classical world. No, that's not how Christianity took over Europe. That happened with sheer force. We'll find out how Christianity destroyed the classical world when we talk in a few minutes to journalist Catherine Nixie, author of The Darkening Age, The Christian Destruction of the Classical World. Catherine studied classics at Cambridge and subsequently worked as a classics teacher for several years before becoming a journalist on the arts desk at the Times of London, where she still works. It's time to go to the update booth with Alex to find out what he's been up to on social media this week. So what have you been doing on the Facebooks, Twitters, and whatnot, Alex? On Facebook this week, I shared a Black Agenda uh, Report piece by Glenn Ford titled, The Democratic Party is White Supremacist Too, the people we're really into. And uh, if you've listened to the show long enough, you can read that entire piece in Glenn Ford's voice which makes it even more fun. Also, I shared an extremely bleak, very American feature that was titled Unlocked and Loaded, Families Confront Dementia and Guns. Uh, That is a very fun, very 2018 American read. Uh, And then also I shared a 
very big, very recommended Viewpoint Magazine piece on Huey Newton's theory of intercommunalism. Uh, it was a big viewpoint dis- uh, deconstruction of Black Panther Huey Newton's uh, writing on intercommunalism. And interestingly, Facebook recommended that we pay to boost that post a day after rejecting our Assad Haider interview for being too political. <laughs> so uh, uh, Assad Haider is too political. Huey Newton is not. Not, not so political. Uh, also, Twitter, uh, I just want to say thank you to everyone uh, who helped me deal with my powdery mildew problem on my peonies. Uh, sorry for using the This Is Hell Twitter account to uh, get some gardening work done. But uh, thank you to everyone who helped me with that. And then You did say peonies, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Jeez, Chuck. Uh, also, finally, and actually, if you're listening uh, out there, this might, if you can help me too, uh, someone got in touch with me, uh, a University of Tehran student who is uh, writing uh, their thesis on Black Lives Matter in the U.S. And he got in touch with me to see if uh, we could help him get and connect uh, with some people from Black Lives Matter. He gave me a list of people he'd been trying to get in touch with. And uh, I read that list of people, and I was like, buddy, those people aren't writing me back either. (laughs) Uh, But actually, he got in touch because there was a guest we talked to who he's trying to get in touch with uh, for his thesis. So if you are listening and you are a Black Lives Matter organizer or a Black Lives Matter organizer's friend who might be able to talk with this guy, he's just looking to do an interview uh, via email uh, for his work at the University of Tehran. Uh, Let me know, and I will put you in touch. I'd really like to help this dude out. I loved how his name was Muhammad Ali. I absolutely love the fact that, because I'm just curious exactly how typical is that a name for people in Iran? And apparently, it's very typical because we're not getting emails from Smoke and Joe Frazier, but we're getting them from Muhammad Ali. Anything else? I guess that's it. Uh, You can now become a supporter of This Is Hell via Patreon if you become a regular Patreon supporter. Not only will we show our appreciation by sending you some This Is Hell advertising stickers, but we'll also give you access to special perks, including every week getting a classic interview from our back catalog of 20-plus years of on-air conversations selected by me with a new up-to-date introduction on why I selected that interview for our Patreon supporters. And in the future, you'll get additional bonus gifts by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support on this week's Patreon podcast that you can hear right now by signing up to Patreon. Alex talks about how Facebook would not allow us to boost our interview from last week with Assad Haider on his book, Mistaken Identity, Identity Politics in the Age of Trump. I talk about a friend of mine who sadly died this week from cancer and how Mark Kurlansky writes in his book, Milk, a 10,000-year food fracas. In 1963, the Federal Radiation Council warned that even without further explosions, 1963, even without further explosions in the atmosphere, uh, nuclear explosions, health issues such as an increased incidence of leukemia and birth defects could continue for the next 75 years. Contaminated children could pass on those conditions to their children as well. And we played our interview with Jeff Charlotte from December 2nd, 2006, when Jeff had just posted that month's cover story in Harper's Through a Glass Darkly, How the Christian Right is Reimagining U.S. History. Jeff talked to us 12 years ago about American fundamentalism and it being taught to homeschoolers across the U.S., which frighteningly sounds like the training and education centers for today's fascist youth. This is another not-to-be-missed podcast. If you don't understand what's happening with the rise of fascism here in the United States, all you have to do is find out about American fundamentalism, and you can find that out by getting on board with us on Patreon. Go to thisishell.com, click on support, and there's instructions right there on how you can sign up for Patreon. You're going to be able to understand the rise of fascism today a lot better 
by hearing this conversation that we did with Jeff Charlotte on American fundamentalism. And you can hear that interview right now if you are a Patreon subscriber or become one right away. And that's not all you get. Alex, what else are you doing for the... Oh, he's not on the line. He's on the phone instead. Uh, We want to thank those who have already signed up as Patreon supporters because with your help, we'll finally get our studio up and running as well as rebuild our 21-plus-year archive of shows, thereby allowing us to give you more This Is Hell throughout the week. And we're continuing to build our new studios thanks to you and thanks to my girly who is at this very moment finishing up the paint job in the new producer's booth. So we are definitely on schedule to have the studios working and open to the public during our third annual 20th anniversary party slash listener appreciation slash art opening and music show happening in three weeks on Saturday, July 21st. There will be food, music, art, prizes, and we're going to be showing off some new swag with a brand new This Is How logo. Thanks this week goes to our newest subscribers on Patreon, Michael, Bruce, Braden, John, Howard, Jan, Stephen, and William. And you can join them in supporting This Is Hell by becoming a Patreon subscriber. Just go to thisishell.com and click on support. And we really need your support now with construction, maintenance, phone, and internet bills, and what we owe to our programmers working on the archives. So we are... All of our bills are quickly adding up. So sign up as a supporter of This Is Hell on Patreon now. On next week's Patreon podcast, we'll be preparing our Patreon listeners for an interview we'll be doing on next weekend's live show, Discussing Immigration, by playing our November 16th, 2002 interview with Fran Sullivan of the International Organization on Migration, who helped us figure out the difficult and often overlooked plight of the migrant. Yes, 16 years ago, long before the war in Iraq, long before the Syrian war, long before the war on terror, long before the horrible Obama policy on immigration and the disastrous Trump policy on immigration, we were already discussing the terror that can cause migration and the horrors that constitute migration. But we cannot continue to give you interviews with people who the mainstream media would never talk to without your support through things like Patreon. Thanks to everyone who supported This Is Hell this week and in the coming days, weeks, months, and years. Your support will be needed more than ever as dissent continues to be shunned by the establishment corporate mainstream media. And this week's question from hell is, when the next fall happens, where are you pillaging first? When the next fall happens, where are you pillaging first? All replies read on air following our next guest. And our favorite one's a copy of our next guest's book. That is Catherine Nixie's book, The Darkening Age, The Christian Destruction of the Classical World. Again, the question from hell is, when the next fall happens, where are you pillaging first? Leave your response right now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Listen after our interview with Catherine to find out if you have one. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, Christianity Didn't Defeat the Classical World. Intellectually, Christianity Destroyed the Classical World and all its civilization's advances. Freedom is at war with a conservative view of capitalism, which opposes competition and ignores the power of money. And during a moment of truth, Jeff is appalled by scrotus, whatever that is. All that plus we'll tell you what's on this week's... Oh, I just told you what's on uh, Patreon. We'll get to the uh, question from hell, a whole bunch of people we want to thank for supporting This Is Hell and sharing the show online. Maybe we'll get to twist off knowledge. I'll be reminding you over and over again of our upcoming This Is Hell anniversary and listener appreciation party and art show happening in three weeks on Saturday, July 21st at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago, starting at 3 p.m. and going, well, until you leave. And, of course, in a few minutes, I'll also be telling you who is on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell, live from the planet where we know the value of everything and... I'm sorry, where we know the price of everything and the value of nothing. This is hell. 
Christianity destroyed the classical world, methodically and without remorse. Christianity didn't win some intellectual battle royale, proving its intellectual superiority over the classical world. No, Christianity annihilated the classical world. Here to describe that destruction, journalist Catherine Nixie is author of the new book, The Darkening Age, The Christian Destruction of the Classical World. Welcome to This is Hell, Catherine. Hello, thank you very much for having me on. It's great to have you on the show. You write of the attacks by early Christians. The destroyers came from out of the desert. Palmyra in Syria must have been expecting them for years. Marauding bands of bearded, black-robed zealots armed with little more than stones, iron bars, and an iron sense of righteousness had been terrorizing the east of the Roman Empire. You used the word terrorize. Would you call what the Roman Empire and Christianity did terrorism, and why or why not? Well, um, two parts to that answer. When they struck, yeah, it was definitely terrorism. I mean, this isn't my word. This is the word that the ancient ancient authors themselves use, and they ban certain men. So there's a um, there's a philosopher called Hypatia. She's quite famous. She was one of the most brilliant mathematicians of the era, and she was taken out of her chariot by Christians who thought that because she wrote with mathematical symbols. And used an astrolabe, she was also an astronomer. They assumed that she was a creature of hell. So they didn't know maths, they didn't know astrolabes, they thought that these were demon tricks. So they pulled her out of her carriage and they flayed her alive. And it was said that while she still gasped for breath, the Christians gouged out her eyes. And in that particular crash between the Christians and the pagans, the very word you get in the Roman legal documents is terror. You know, it is a, it's a Latin word. They say, um, these people are creating a great terror. They have to be stopped. So, yeah, I mean, it was. It was terrorism because it caused terror. When Christianity arrived, they wanted everyone to convert, and they wanted them to convert fast, and they wanted them to stop worshipping their other gods. And one of the best ways to do that was to smash their temples and, and show them that there was physical physical power was on the side of the Christians. Did ignorance then defeat intellectualism? Well, I think uh, there were some very learned Christians, but yeah, we lost 99% of all Latin literature in the centuries following Christianization. We lost 90% of all classical literature in total. It was horrific what was lost. And most of it actually wasn't lost. There were the occasional bonfires of books, and there were, you know, philosophers who were chased from the empire and schools were shut. Um, but most of what was lost was lost because people started to say, I'm not going to read these evil pagan books. I am going to read the book, that, the only singular book that matters, which is the Bible, and then the works of St. Augustine and all the saints. So what happened was that a particular kind of knowledge, if you want to call it knowledge, i.e. the Bible, suddenly became all-important and everything else became unimportant to the point of reviled and feared. And people said, don't read pagan books. There were rules that said, stay clear of all pagan books in this period. And it's a very different idea to the usual Christian uh, way of telling the story, which is that, you know, the Christians preserved the works of the classical world. I mean, it's really, it's really not the case. If you look at the numbers, it's just not the case. Is this more about any goal of Christianity to erase the past, or is it more about the Roman Empire's goal to uh, replace the past, replace and erase the past? Can we blame this on Christianity, or should we blame this more on the Roman Empire? Oh, well, I mean, by this point, the Christianity, the point where it all starts to go wrong, if you're a, if you're a imagine yourself as a classical manuscript and you want to survive until the modern world, 
the point at which you really should start feeling scared is when the Roman Empire turns Christian. So when the emperor of Rome says, I am now a Christian. And that, in that next hundred year period, is where the laws start to appear. Law after law appears saying, you can't debate in public, you can't go into the temples. It's, you know, and then and then the temples should be demolished eventually. That's what the laws say. And laws and, uh, are also passed saying that it becomes illegal to be anything other than Christian. And laws are passed saying, if you go back to your old pagan ways, then you're going to be put to death. And laws are passed saying this particular school in Athens, the academy, which is, they traced their history back to Plato, that closed because laws were passed against it, effectively meaning that the philosophers could no longer continue in their work. And it's that, I mean, Christianity in that period couldn't allow you to believe anything else because they said, if you believe something else, then, you know, you believe what is evil, what is demonic. The world at this point starts to split into two, into good and evil. So is this kind of fanaticism, is this kind of uncompromising zealotry, was this common in... It, was this common in human history prior to the Roman Empire? Uh, because now we're seeing, we've seen it with the uh, kind of Khmer Rouge and the way that they've tried to erase their history. You, we've seen it with the Taliban and how they've tried to erase their history. We've seen it with uh, with ISIS and how they've tried to erase their history. So was this some, is this something that we can see is consistent and commonly happening over and over again throughout human history? Or did this start with the uh, Roman Empire and Christianity? I mean, in the period I'm looking at, it, it starts with Christianity. They take some from Judaism. So Judaism advises ways in which you can smash idol statues to really get the demon out of them. So they say you can kind of smash the nose off, gouge the eyes out of statues. You can, And it says things like, you can drag them around in the dirt, but you know that won't get rid of the demon. And it's from the Old Testament and from tracts such as that that Christianity gets the inspiration for what it then does next. But I mean, really, it wasn't, it wasn't commonly done in the Jewish world. It was a Christian, a Christian kind of innovation to do, to do this. Like, people had smashed statues before, but this religious fervor that says that you must be my religion, otherwise you're damned, that is new. That is something very, very new, and that is something that spreads with Christianity. And it spreads as Christianity gets, into, gets its foot into the corridors of power, that is when the danger begins, and that is when the huge destruction of art that I write about, which was the largest destruction of art that the human history had ever seen until that point, begins. And that's when the Christians go around smashing other statues. And, I mean, to me, it looks very clearly like it's, the problem is monotheism, because the Romans were polytheistic. So we call them pagan. They would never have called themselves that. Like, actually, to be honest, before the Christians, you'd never have described yourself with your religion at all. You'd have what you get in the pagan texts is they say, oh, it doesn't matter what you worship. Everyone believes in different things. You know, everyone always thinks what they believe is best. That's totally natural. And you get pagan writers arguing with the Christians. When the Christians start to smash their temples and take their altars, they say, please, what are you doing? You know, we see the same stars, writes this one orator. He begs them to stop and he says, we see the same stars, the same Sky is shared by all. What does it matter what route we use to seek the truth? And the Christians, they take his altar and they say, it matters to us, because if you're not Christian, then you're damned. Is this then the first politicization and even government weaponization of religion? The Romans, 
the Roman, in the Roman world and the Greek world, politics and religion were absolutely interwoven. What changes in the Christian world is that they start to care what everyone in the in the country thinks. So in the Roman world, if you went to the Senate, you would have made a sacrifice before you went in. That, that was common. So religion was ever a... The Parthenon is a political statement, but it's also a religious statement. But what changed with Christianity is that the government started to say, in your own home, you can no longer do what you want. Whereas the Roman government never sought to really bother with what people did in their own home. It certainly never sought to know what went on in someone's heart. But suddenly with this new Christian God, you can see into your soul, it became really important to Roman rulers that they controlled what went on in the souls of all their people. And so then that is when you get the really vicious attack because you have to say to prove to a Christian that you're a Christian you have to not just turn up at church that's not enough you have to show that in your very heart of your heart you believe and so that's when suddenly things turn nasty so you have the soul of yourself is no longer free it belongs to the rules of the state and that's when that is when the real persecution and such things as heresy and you know crimes um crimes of religion become become a real issue. And I couldn't help but notice that the time frame that you put this in, 4th to 6th century AD, mm. uh, this destruction of the classical world by the Roman Empire and Christianity, I couldn't help but notice that this uh, kind of coincides with the beginning of the Dark Ages, which happens as the Roman Empire is not only in decline, mm. but in your telling of it, also in the process of destroying the classical world. How much does the Roman Empire's fall account for the Dark Ages, and how much does their destruction of the classical world account for the Dark Ages? <laughs> well, Gibbon, the English historian Edward Gibbon, would have would blamed Christianity for a lot of it. I mean, I would say that what one of the things that frightens us, I think, when we look at the Dark Ages, is that idea that, that your soul is no longer free, almost this feeling, and it wasn't like this, but this feeling that it's kind of a police state, that you can't step out of line and you can't do what you want, or you could, in theory, get into trouble. And I think that is the idea. That's this narrowing of the intellectual free liberty of every human. Um, I think that is what starts now. But also, yeah, you read a lot of books, and it does go into the Dark Age. I mean, the very reason we call it the Dark Age is because an Italian historian, Petrarch, looks back in the Renaissance and he said, I cannot believe that the Christians shut the oldest and greatest philosophical school in uh, Athens. Um, and he and others at this period dated the Dark Ages to this symbolic moment. I mean, the academy had been where Plato had taught. So to shut it was as if the whole classical world was ending. Now, it wasn't the same academy, and you can make lots of, uh, lots of arguments about how different the philosophy was, and it was. It was kind of closer to theology in some ways. But it was that moment at which they said philosophical argument is no longer no longer on the guard. You know, philosophy cannot disagree with the Bible from now on. And if it does disagree with the Bible, then, you know, we are not going to put up with it. So how successful was Christianity's erasure of earlier uh, civilizations? How difficult was it for your own research? Because I was thinking, you know, how successful was their strategy of conquering Europe by erasing the past? Well, I mean, there there are definitely other 
other causes, I should say that there were sort of barbarian invasions and things like that. Although the Germans, I think, interestingly, call the barbarian invasions the Great Migration. It just depends on how you look at them. <laughs> um, there were lots of causes of of what happened to what happened to Rome. You know, hyperinflation, several plagues. Um, but I think the Christianity definitely didn't help. I mean, the problem with monotheism, in my view, is less the theism than the mono. It doesn't really matter. You can believe in pink elephants if you want, so long as you don't then go around the country forcing everyone else in the, in the country to believe in pink elephants. But what they what we lost then was firstly this idea that you can think what you want and do what you want and joke about what you want. I mean, what what you lose in this period is humour. So the Romans, when they wrote about religion, had often been very funny. So there's this guy called Celsus who writes about He's the first critic of Christianity we have, and he's writing in the third century, and he says things like, I don't believe that God would have had a child with Mary. I mean, you know, he says, he's God. He could have literally any woman he wants. Why does he go for some, like, poor nobody in the backwater? He would totally have had a queen, at, you know, at the very least. And he says such things as, um, he says he thinks Mary got knocked up by a soldier called... Um, Panthera, which sounds like the Greek word for Parthenos, and that's why. And then she made up this story to like cover her tracks, right? Which is is probably the biggest lie ever told in the world, if true, <laughs> or most influential lie. Um, and he said things like, um, he said things like, I don't believe God made the world in seven days. Like, you know, if he's an omnipotent God, surely he could just make it in one day. You know, boom. Why does he like have to piece it all out bit by bit and then have a rest? He says like a bad builder on the seventh day. So, you know, that these like, kind of criticisms feel almost shocking to us now because we don't make jokes about religion really anymore. And when Monty Python made a similar joke about Mary not being really the son of God, but the, um, then that, that film was banned, and that was in the 1970s. So one of the things we lost is this idea that you can laugh and joke about anything and criticise anything, you know, Something's become very sacred at this moment, and we kind of never really get that back. And the reason, sorry, to answer the question, why do people not um, know about this? Why do they not write about it? I mean, mostly when people have told the story of Christianization, they have told it from the point of view of either being a Christian or even if they're not a Christian, using only Christian sources. So you don't very often see it from the other side. But the other side were, you know, often horrified. I mean, some weren't, some were fine, some converted happily. But many said things like, we're being swept away by the torrent. We are men reduced to ashes. You know, everything has been turned on its head. That's the kind of phrases you get. People are terrified. Could this Christian destruction of the classical world, could this also be described as some other kind of crime against humanity? Was it ethnic cleansing, genocide? Is there a category of crime against humanity that best describes this violence? I think it's, it's a religious, it's a religious war and it's a religious, is, is the best way to understand it. It's um, in its latter stages. It's not ethnic because religion in the ancient world wasn't ethnically distributed and nor was Christianity. I mean, Christianity was everywhere among everyone. But what it was was a religious war which turned an empire you know, almost on a sixpence. When the first Roman emperor becomes Christian in the start of the, the fourth century, the way the Christians say this is that, oh, it's the end of persecution. So the Romans had been being horrible to the Christians before, and now everyone who wants to be Christian can be Christian. It's not. What it is is 
that is the beginning of a century in which by the end of that next century, everyone is Christians. When he came to power, fewer than 10% were Christians. This wasn't like a great release to have a Christian emperor. It was a total surprise. And within 100 years, the whole empire had to follow. So it was a, it was a, mass, conver- a mass and very rapid conversion, whatever you understand by conversion. Um, now, they, the Christians say they converted everyone by 100 years or so later, 120 years. They say there are no pagans left, but obviously not true. But they're pretty confident that most people are now Christian. So how does this kind of destruction have anything to do with our true Christian beliefs? Was this done in the name of a religion that would not condone those actions? Or does the Bible preach a law of retribution and violence? Does Christianity in some way lend itself to any vulnerability, if you will, to be exploited in this way? Well, there's a lot in The Bible is a broad church. If you want to find offenses for this, you can find them. So, you know, I am a jealous God. You shan't worship other gods. You shall have no other gods but me. Um, and what's interesting is that he's not denying that there are, other go- there are other gods in that. There are other gods, but you're not supposed to worship them. So there's, it's, it's there in, you know, it's there in the Ten Commandments. It's, it's there in the heart of the religion itself. But you get passages in Deuteronomy where, you know, it says that you should, you should destroy other temples. It, it's absolutely there in the Bible. And some of the greatest thinkers of the early church, St. Augustine and, and other writers, encouraged their congregations to go and smash up temples. So St. Augustine said that the smashing up of other temples is what God wants, what God wills, what God commands. That is that is what you should be doing. He absolutely takes it for granted that his uh, fellow Christians will be doing this when they're not in his church. And he also says, not just the attack their temples, but you ought to try and convert other people. So, And he advises, if people won't convert willingly, then you should use force. And he says it's not cruel to do this. It's a bit like a father beating his son with a rod. So you're a schoolmaster correcting a child, rather. So you're, you're beating them, but you're doing it out of love. So you're like a doctor cutting out a canker or you're like somebody stopping a small boy stepping on a snake using the force of your hands. So you see a small boy running, you see there's a snake, you grab him. And he says, this is what you're doing. If you make someone to convert to Christianity, you're not doing a bad thing, even if you do it by force, because otherwise their soul will perish. So St. Augustine, the Bible, the greatest figures in the early church, you know, encouraged this, thought it was totally natural, if not a good deed. Was Christianity simply, because I think this can go, this kind of a chicken and egg thing, but was Christianity simply a convenient vehicle to use as a law and rationalize Roman imperial intentions, or was it Roman imperial intentions that were motivated by Christianity? Oh, I see. Well, the thing is, this was all within the same empire. So it doesn't really change the borders of the empire, Christianity. I mean, you can argue about that. I I don't think it really changes the borders of the empire. What it is, it's an empire converting itself. So is it an imperial ambition? The thing about the Romans, the the Christians will later come and make a lot about the martyrs. They'll say that the Romans were trying to um, convert people away from Christianity. But Romans almost never martyred Christians. They really weren't that interested. And you get these amazing accounts where... Romans will try and persuade Christians not to um, insist on being martyred. So there's this governor, Arius Antoninus, and 
one morning he's at work and people, them, uh, he finds that all the Christians in the province turn up before him and request that he executes them because they want to die a martyr's death. That's the thing. When the Romans and the Christians clash early on, when you get the stories of martyrs and St. Paul and things like that, what's happening is often less that the Romans are hunting out the Christians than that the Christians are turning up in front of the Romans and saying, execute me because I want to be a martyr. And there are, there are Christian texts, there's a Christian text that says, if you die a martyr's death in heaven, you will have a hundred times the rewards, a hundred times the children, a hundred times the family. And so Christians in this period commit suicide because they want to die a martyr's death and then be celebrated forever in heaven. And you know, you can argue that there are good reasons for doing this, because if you're an absolute nobody on earth, dies as a suicidal martyr, then in heaven, you know, you're going to be celebrated, plus you'll be famous on earth. So North Africa gets very frightened. This idea of suicidal martyrdom spreads fast in certain areas of North Africa. And, and people start calling these people who are committing suicide, they say they're a death threat. And that people are very frightened by this, this willingness to commit suicide because you think you'll be worshipped in heaven. And that is particularly Christian, I think. It's not Roman at all. Roman belief was kind of more a matter, as far as we can tell, of performing certain actions, of like going to the temple and doing a sacrifice. It wasn't about belief in yourself. It wasn't particularly about an afterlife. They They seem conflicted about whether or not there is one. They seem fairly certain it won't be fun if it does exist. Uh, Roman Roman religion was more a sort of thing that was all around you uh, in the air, but not kind of necessarily in your soul and not something that you went on about at great length. That being rewarded for martyrdom obviously sounds a lot like the uh, typical criticism that people have of Islam and of Muslim extremism, Muslim militancy, and that is that they will be rewarded for going to heaven if they are also martyred. So, how do you feel about that kind of media narrative that blames or tells or says that Islam is this uh, suicide or martyrdom-seeking uh, religion when you can find it as well in the Bible? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, long before in the Bible, and and it, you will find it throughout. Uh, yeah, it's. I mean, we just think it's new because we don't know enough history. But it it, it was it was it's not absolutely not new. You know, you see so many of those those things we see in Christianity. And and it's easier in a way, I suppose, to say it's nothing like what we do. We'd never do that. We'd never smash up Palmyra. We'd never kind of commit suicide because we think we'd be a martyr in heaven. But of course, these things, you know, this is this is a human thing to do. It's an odd human thing to do, but it is a human thing to do, not necessarily an Islamic thing to do. And you know, there's this there's this narrative that it's a very odd, very other, and it, it's nothing of the kind. And equally, I mean, I think most, the vast majority of Muslims would be, would feel as the Christians in this period did. You see them writing, saying to, saying to the, to each other, what are these crazy people doing? Why are they killing themselves? This is frightening. This is weird. This is, you know, other. I mean, you're always going to get a spectrum of people within a massive community, and Christianity has suicidal uh, would-be martyrs, and Islam has suicidal would-be martyrs. If you preach the idea of an afterlife strongly enough, you know, it makes sense that people would want to get to it faster. There's a great story when a Greek philosopher is in a temple, because Greek religion and Roman religion were similarly had uh, strong strains of scepticism in them at most times. So there's a story of a 
Greek philosopher who gets shown around by a Greek priest, and he's he's a priest of a part of religion, or Orpheism, that said it had an afterlife, and the priest is going on, and he's saying, you know, it's much better after you die, it's amazing, and then once we die, we'll be in, in this wonderful, wonderful afterlife. And the philosopher just says, well, why don't you die? And it's a good question. If you believe in heaven really strongly, why don't you die? Is this Roman Empire destruction of the classical world in Christian history, uh, by using Christianity, is, is this something that is unique in Christian history, or has Christianity been used repeatedly as a rationalization for civilizational erasure, if you will? Um, they don't. They don't totally. By the way, they don't totally erase it. There is stuff left, and what's left is safe, definitely safe by them because what well, once they're here, there's no one else running any schools. So, um. But is it unique? No, I don't think so, no. And there are periods of statue, statue smashing within Christianity itself. So Christianity is nothing, um, if not even-handed. It spends a lot of time torturing its own people <laughs> and um, smashing up smashing up statues of sex within themselves. You know, you have these iconoclastic periods. We had one in England uh, when Protestantism took over. You know, it swept across the country and English churches, when you go into them now, are pretty white-walled, bare, don't have much in the way of decoration. That's because you know, during the Reformation, Christians smashed them all. So, uh, did Christianity annihilate whatever older religion they encountered? And how well is this understood by other religions today? How much does the annihilation of previous religions by Christianity form the opinion of Christianity by other religions today? Um, I don't think it's particularly well known, I would say. I think most people don't know about this period because... History is written written by the victors, and the Christian history was absolute. I mean, until 1871, you had to pretty much be ordained to teach in Oxford or Cambridge, and that was pretty much, they were pretty much the main universities going then. Um, and even now, when people write about this, I was saying that before, but they don't use non-Christian sources. They just use Christian sources. So it's not that well known, and I don't think it informs how other people see Christianity, because... Um, it just isn't really that well known. And what was the, there were two prongs to that question. Sorry, what was the first? Oh, I was just trying to figure out if, if to what degree this might give other religions this idea that Christianity is an invading force that is always trying to take over other countries. I was just wondering if this kind of history may have may give people that impression. Oh, I see. It's not so much it's trying to take over other countries in this. It, it's more well, um, it's more that it's trying to take over the minds of everyone within its own country. Um, but it was it was unusual, yeah. And all bits of Roman religion, how much survived? That was that was part of the question as well. Um, in the eighth century, you would still get some pagan pagan worship going on, and I think it was Cyprus. And and certainly, if you travel to the fringes of what was then the Roman Empire. Uh, now you will find festivals that are basically pagan festivals, but they have now kind of gone under a Christian cover. And I mean, you know, Christmas itself. So on the 25th of December, they used to have an, uh, was said to be in Roman times, it was the Nativity of Sol Invictus, the unconquered sun. And the sun, S-U-N in this case, was supposed to be born on the 25th of December and people went into the shrines and they came out at midnight and they said, the Virgin has given birth. And then everyone celebrated this midwinter festival. Now, you don't have to think that hard to think of an echo where a virgin gives birth on the 25th of December in our own time. So a lot went, a lot was reconstituted, um, and some bits survived. 
Oh, um, you write that it is true. Monasteries did preserve a lot of classical knowledge, but it is far yeah. from the whole truth. In fact, this appealing narrative has almost entirely obscured an earlier, less glorious story for before it preserved the church destroyed. Is Christianity yeah. then both the curator of classical knowledge and the destroyer of it? Yeah, that's a good way to see it. It's the curator of the very little that was left. <laughs> and um, and then also, and then the, destroy, the destroyer of much of it. And the way it destroyed it was by arguing against it all the time, by saying, uh, this, is, this is terrible, this writing is filth. So there are lots of Roman poets now who have only just been translated in the late 20th century because they were just considered too rude. I mean, I can't, I'm sure I cannot say one of the lines of a Catullus poem on air because you'd have you'd have people complaining. But, um, you know, Christians disliked this bawdy, free, liberal Roman poetry. They disliked uh, things like Sappho. She's a lesbian poet, so some of her works were burnt. And when you read a Sappho poem now, I was reading one the other day, and it said something like woman, and then there was one other word, four lines, four lines lower down. I think it was... Uh, fantastic or something like that and that was it that was the whole poem because the christians partly by not copying out and then by attacking those manuscripts were left destroyed it and they destroyed philosophical works as well there were lots of roman works partly those that argued against christianity but ones that said you know don't worry about the gods we're all made of atoms you don't have to worry about pleasing these deities they don't exist we're just atoms and the christians um Obviously, they had to dis- they had to attack those. They attack them verbally. They attack them by slandering them and blackening their names. So we say Epicurean today means someone who eats and drinks and gets drunk. Now, Epicurean actually meant somebody who was quite frugal. Uh, Epicurus said, give me a pot of cheese and I will feast for a week. In other words, what matters is how you enjoy what little you have. And Epicure- Epicureans also argued that the world was made of atoms. The Christians attacked them vehemently and said that these people are drunkards because they say uh, pleasure is the highest goal, but that's not what they meant. And the reasons Christians attacked them, attacked them, I mean, sort of verbally and, and on paper and by saying their philosophy was wrong, was because they threatened the basis of Christianity. They threatened the idea that you were going to be punished by a God. They threatened the idea that you should believe in gods at all. You write, before it preserved, the church destroyed in a spasm of destruction never seen before and one that appalled many non-Christians watching it. During the 4th and 5th centuries, the Christian church demolished, vandalized, and melted down a simply staggering quantity of art. To what extent has this led to a perspective that Western civilization dominates not only the arts but humanities and all the letters? Is Western centrism based on Christianity erasing, at least in part, all but Christian art? Uh, that's an interesting question. Um, they, um, there lots was left. So they, uh, I would say that. Lots was still left, but some of it was mutilated. I mean, there was a lot of art in the Roman Empire. I, uh, the, It was all Western, really, largely, what they were doing. I don't know, it wasn't in Greece. Uh, it wasn't in Egypt. Um has it led to that? That's an interesting question. Um, I think that's probably, I would, I would, my hunch would be that's a separate issue, but I don't know. I haven't studied it in terms of like a broader West, East, West, East, West narrative. I mean, you know, we shouldn't forget that Christianity is actually Eastern. I mean, we think of it as Western, but it's Eastern. I mean, it's, it's, it's from, from the Holy Land, it's from the Middle East, like St. Augustine was North African. I mean, this is not, we think of it as a Northern European, you know, European thing, but it 
it actually wasn't. It's it's much it's uh, much more Eastern than we ever tend to remember. So you also write that books, which were often stored in temples, suffered terribly. The remains of the greatest library in this ancient world, a library that had once held perhaps 700,000 volumes, were destroyed in this way by Christians. It was over a millennium before any other library would even come close Mm. to its holdings. Works by censured philosophers were forbidden, and bonfires blazed across the empire as outlawed books went up in flames. So how anti-knowledge, anti-science, anti-art was the beginning of Christianity, because this is starting to sound to remind me of 1930s Germany. Is (laughs) is this about being anti-knowledge, anti-science, anti-art, or was this about being (laughs) anti-religion and those things were just unintended consequences? At first, it is emphatically about being anti-knowledge. So literally in the Bible, St. Paul says, wisdom is foolishness. So, And this is repeated again and again, wisdom is foolishness. Christianity praised those with no education, though it praises St. Anthony, who goes out to the desert and says that he doesn't want, says he scorns his school books. And then he, uh, and then St. Augustine loves St. Anthony. And there's this great celebration of ignorance. And then later they will start to assimilate Christian knowledge, but they feel very awkward about it. So when people will, uh, non-Christian knowledge, sorry, but yeah, they don't like, they don't like knowledge. They don't like the kind of clever, clever Romans at first. And they say uh, that you don't need learning to be clever. You just, you don't need learning to be near God. You just need to believe. And then they, they later, they start to assimilate this classical knowledge because there's no way that they're going to convert everyone. They realize that the elite Romans think that Christianity is stupid. This is one of the things that they're always writing. Christians are stupid. They're ill-educated. They don't know anything. Their stories are stupid. The Bible's ridiculous. A Greek philosopher calls the Old Testament utter trash, he said. You know, those are his exact words. Utter trash. Only a child would believe this nonsense. It's the kind of thing an old woman would be embarrassed to sing sing to her her ward, her child, to get him to go to sleep. You know, who would believe the story of Jonah and the whale? You know, man can't survive in the belly of a fish. Who believes the story of a man making the world in the seven days? You know, it's garbage, they say. so there's that. So there, there is the idea that the Christians are stupid. And the thing that really creates huge problems is the Bible itself. So when we think of the Bible today, it has that grandeur, that kind of antique grandeur, the King James Bible and, you know, the way it's translated, it feels so, so important, so wise. You know, every sentence feels so full, like a ripe fruit of, of literary, you know, of centuries of literature in every sentence. But in those days, what it felt like, was badly written, often ill thought through, nonsense. And it felt like this not just to the non-Christians, it felt like this to Christians. So St. Augustine gets very embarrassed by the Bible. And St. Rome has nightmares where he's accused by God of preferring classical literature to Christian literature. And the problem is, is that the Bible is simple literature. And that, you know, today you can see that's its great virtue. But equally, in the first days, it just seemed really stupid. And it was written in a low-class Greek, low-class Latin. And obviously, because often those writing it weren't very well educated, but that would mean they would use the wrong words, what we would describe as the wrong words for things. So they would say, the equivalent is not that bad. It's the equivalent in in British English of saying, like, sofa, uh, saying seti instead of sofa, or serviette instead of napkin. Like, the slightly lower class, uh, lower class forms of words. 
and they'd get the grammar wrong often or they'd get the cases of the Latin or the Greek wrong. And that's not a problem in and of itself, but it sort of is a problem if this is supposed to be the word of God, because that's what the Bible's supposed to be. It's supposed to be the completely perfect word of God. But if it is, then God can't do grammar very well. <laughs> and that's a problem. Catherine, uh, just a couple more questions for you. You write, many, many good people are impelled by their Christian faith to do many, many good things. I know because I'm an almost daily beneficiary of such goodness myself. This book is not intended as an attack on these people, and I hope they will not see it as such. But it is undeniable that there have been, that there still are, those who use monotheism and its weapons to terrible ends. Christianity is a greater and a stronger religion when it admits this and challenges it. What happens when Christianity doesn't challenge it? What do you fear can happen to Christianity when Christians do not realize the history of Christian destruction of the classical world? Well, there's two things. We, one of them you mentioned earlier, we look at Islam and, and the extremists within Islam, and we see that there's something specific to Islam. It's not all. You know, that sort of thing happens in all religions all the time. So we see the main problem is, is that you see yourself as better. So you see yourself as a fundamentally better human being, a kind of cleverer one, a holier one, a smarter one, a sort of generally better one than other people simply because of the fact that you're Christian. And therefore, you don't cost yourself so much. You don't think, is that the right thing to do? And you start to treat other people less well. You see other people as... And it starts in this way. So my, the reason that I thought of writing this book was that my father was a monk and my mother was a nun. Um, and then they left, obviously, and had us. So I was brought up in a fairly Catholic background and then I studied Catholic at university. But I remember talking to my parents about this, and they both said that a common way that they would face sentences when they were at university and when they were monks and nuns, that they would say, so-and-so is very nice, but not a Catholic. Like, that conjunction tells you everything. They thought that to be nice and to be good, you kind of had to be a Catholic. And if someone was nice and not a Catholic, it was weird. It was like an error of category to them. They were like, have friends. People who aren't Catholic can be good. You know? They saw the world through this veil of religion, um, later literally through, through uh, from underneath a veil of religion, and it changed the way they saw other human beings. And they rated them, they wouldn't have said it like this, but they automatically rated other people as less good than themselves because they weren't religious. And that is so dangerous. And unless you know you're doing it, you're in danger of misusing that, that thought. And you're also less good at seeing your own history. And if you don't understand your own history, how can you possibly begin to understand anyone else's? One last question for you, Catherine. We have been speaking with journalist Catherine Nixie. By the way, this is a fascinating book. Author of The Darkening Age, The Christian Destruction of the Classical World. And you can actually win a copy of her book if you have the best answer to this week's question from hell, which we'll get to in just a moment. Catherine studied classics at Cambridge and subsequently worked as a classics teacher for several years before becoming a journalist on the arts desk of the Times of London, where she still works. Catherine, one last question for you, and as we do mm. with each and every one of our guests, our final question is your very own question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you mm. might hate to answer, or our audience will hate your response. Does Christianity in Europe, does its expanse by the Roman Empire, the impact it had on the classical world, 
does that prove that throughout history, when it comes to who will have the prevailing religion, ruthlessness wins? Yeah, I think probably ruthlessness certainly helps, as does... Do you know what wins? It's converting the ruler of a country to your religion. <laughs> that helps no end. And if they are ruthless, then you're onto an absolute winner. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, Miss Machiavelli, it's great to have you on the show. Uh, Catherine Nixie is a journalist and author of The Darkening Age, The Christian Destruction of the Classical World. Thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you. Thanks so much. Live from the rotting corpse that is broadcast radio, this is hell. Conservative economic policies ignore the unlimited power of money while obsessing on the limited power of government that exists by definition. Conservative capitalism also limits competition and encourages the consolidation of wealth that creates monopolies and multiplies power in a way government simply cannot. And the power acquired by money is now restricting all our freedoms, the freedom, the, uh, the freedoms, the rights only finds the freedom, the right only finds within the horribly flawed free market ideology. We'll untangle the capitalism freedom mess in a few when we talk to economist Rob Larson, author of the new book Capitalism versus Freedom: The Toll Road to Serfdom. Rob is a professor of economics at Coma Community College in Washington State. Okay, let's read your answers to this week's question from hell. When the next fall happens. Where are you pillaging first? When the next fall happens, where are you pillaging first? All replies read on air right now. Our favorite wins a copy of Catherine Nixie's book, which we just featured here on This Is Hell, The Darkening Age, The Christian Destruction of the Classical World. Again, the question from hell is, when the next fall happens, where are you pillaging first? Leave your response right now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, and you still may get a chance at winning today's prize. Alex, you have all the answers to this week's question from hell because... When the next fall happens, where are you pillaging first? Jason L. says, the streets with good Halloween candy. <laughs> Grant G. says, pub. <laughs> Joanne C. says, nothing. Trump and the Republicans are already pillaging everything. Ford L. says, Baskin Robbins, it's time I sampled all 31 flavors. <laughs> when the next fall comes, what are you pillaging first? Scott S. says, storming the gates. Elliot P. said, that ass. <laughs> yeah, I... Cynthia P. says, Costco. Robert H. says, wherever there is production, I will seize it. <laughs> Marina H. says, the Koch brothers' mansions and donate their treasures to mu museums and libraries and universities and turn their mansions and lands into socialist communes, kibbutz style. Hmm. Uh, Marina H. also said, am I disqualified if I also say I want to pillage the Greens' Museum of the Bible and expatriate all their stolen artifacts to their countries of origin. No, that's fine. Yes, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> we'll allow. Uh, Richard M. says, the suburbs. <laughs> when the next fall comes, where are you pillaging first? Jeremy S. says, any and all nearby pharmacies and medical supply depots. <laughs> Look out, Walgreens. We're coming for you. Mark R. says, Smith & Wesson. Alexandra C. Yikes. says, beef jerky outlet. <laughs> Marie K. says, Costco. Scott S. says, the sharper image. I want to know what those stakes were all about, and the head, a headband massager might be nice in the trying times ahead. <laughs> and that Astro label helped, too. James M. says, first spot we hit, it was my liquor store. I finally got all that alcohol I can't afford, which I'm assuming is a song title, because, or is a song lyric, because it's in quotes. Dennis H. says, whichever presidential library is closest. <laughs> when the next fall comes, what are you pill where are you pillaging first? Absentee says, the Library of Congress can't let the barbarians plunge us into the dark ages again. 
Matt P says, when the next fall when the next fall comes, I'll probably need a jacket. So Burlington? <laughs> Matt. Come on, come on, Matt. Eric T says the Walton family apartments at 740 Park Ave. It's in walking distance. Gretchen W says, Barney's. Noah S says, Whole Foods. <laughs> Benjamin C says, George Washington's nose. I just like how there's so many brand names that are coming out here. Who is that? Uh, George Washington's nose. No, yeah, it was, uh, it was uh, Benjamin C. Okay. Aaron B says, Elon Musk's secret underground rocket launch pad that is stocked with the flesh of tender Tesla line workers. <laughs> Who said that? Uh, that was Aaron B. Uh, John B sent us a link to... The Sun Microsystems co-founder wants almost $100 million for Palo Alto Home. So it's pretty cozy digs. It's a $100 million Palo Alto Home. When the fall comes, where are you pillaging first? Alexandra H. says, a pumpkin patch. That's nice. <laughs> Gary B. says, I'm Quaker, so the violence of pillaging is out. Even looting the possessions of others seems a bit over the top. I may liberate the stray otter end left lying about after it's been dropped in the street, though. We'll have to see where I am when the wheels come off. <laughs> Typical Quaker answer. Uh, David I says, cheese shop. Definitely a cheese shop. <laughs> Joseph D says, Canada. <laughs> when the next fall comes, where are you pillaging first? Marshall W says, Boston Tea Party style dumping of all things pumpkin spice. <laughs> then we empty the register. Man, pumpkins keep coming up in this one. <laughs> uh, Bert H says, I'm not. I mean, I've got a small farm. We're working towards going solar, and I've got a rather large library of technical manuals, agricultural slash horticultural texts, and DIY slash homesteading books. Instead of pillaging, I'll figure out how to spend the first stretch of time after the collapse checking in on my neighbors, making sure folks are getting by and shoring them up if they aren't. Ain't none of us surviving a collapse by ourselves or reverting to removing Mad Max-esque bandits. We'll survive it by recreating the community bonds that helped our ancestors survive, leaning on each other... Forging community around us, working together as labor multiplier to get the hard work of living accomplished. I'm damn. I'm gonna I'm gonna pillage Bert H. That's what I was just gonna say. The same thing. Let's all just go per, pillage Bert H.'s place. It sounds like the great place to go. Does he leave an address? Uh, no. Damn that it. would want if somebody said posted Bert H.'s address. <laughs> uh, Gorilla G says, mm, "You mean after the dispensary? <laughs> uh, probably the beach." <laughs> pillage the beach. Mark A. S. says, "La Milagro Tortilla Factory." Yeah. I support those. I, I I can grow the tomatoes, onions, and peppers for salsa, but to tortillas will take a little bit longer. That doesn't take much time. Mika D. Oh, the corn might be a pain. Yeah, yeah. Mika D. Says, Carrie's Lounge. Revolt globally. <laughs> pillage locally. Nick A. Says, The Trampoline Gym. I've always wanted to go to one, and I think the fall would be a very appropriate time to go bonkers in there and mess it up. <laughs> Who said that? <laughs> that was Nick A. <laughs> yeah, that's very good. <laughs> Sebastian M. Says, The house with the don't tread on me flag. Chandler H says, wherever the bitcoins are stored. <laughs> Madeline, Madeline E says, Mitch McConnell's tiny turtle maw. <laughs> when the next fall comes, where are you pillaging first? David G said, the world of contemporary art has some neat stuff. Camillo P says, the nearest town called Rome. Dan Z says, JB Pritzker's grown grow lamp hideout. Uh, Randall H, Randall M says, hot dogs. Ladio says Detroit should be easy, and I can store my stash in the salt mines. <laughs> Bodon G says a biological weapons lab in the middle of a dry Soviet sea. Oops, that already happened. Did that already happen? Uh, I don't know. I've got to look that up. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, that's right. The uh, in Kazakhstan. Uh, I'll look that up. Ronaldo M says a library. Time enough to read at last. 
I think that was a reference to the Twilight Zone episode. <laughs> uh, Jim P says, I've already insulated myself with a wealthy family who are allowing me to live on their grounds if I clean up after the horses, so I'm not worried. <laughs> nice. Jeffy D says, Kaiser Permanente. <laughs> when the next fall happens, where are you pillaging first? Try F says, we head to the hills to pilfer the pantries and fields of the luxury estates and bougie bunkers, as well as those liberal hippie back-to-the-landers who long ago wisely decided to flee cities in order to cultivate soils and seeds, opting to serve the cult of self-actualization by leaving behind less privileged sisters and brothers who cannot afford their organic veggies because of the collective downward pressure of wages that our love of, cheap, uh, our love of cheapness has facilitated. Yeah, we're going to take, take care, revel, and share. Or die. <laughs> Always like to add or die in there somewhere. Uh, Andrew T says, "Adult World porn is recession proof." <laughs> Adult World was the magazine that they were reading in Twin Peaks, wasn't it? I can't uh, remember. That didn't work out very well. Uh, Matt M says, "My house because I know where all the good stuff is." <laughs> and finally, Rick B says, "The Federal Reserve Bank those uncut sheets of hundreds would make great wallpaper." Oh, uh, I know where all the good stuff is. That's pretty good. Uh, my response to the question from Hell, where's, uh, when the next fall happens, where are you pillaging first? There's these two unguarded Quonset huts that I know about, hidden deep in the pine forest of the northern Great Lakes region. That's where I'm pillaging first, because when the pillaging goes down, I'm going to need a lot of weed. You know, I, I think this is easy. I mean, there are some great answers, you know, uh... Uh, beef jerky place, Burlington Coat Factory, cheese shops by David I, the Elon Musk response from Aaron B, uh, Elliot P saying that ass, of course, Richard M in suburbs, that's all good. But there's no doubt that the winner this week is Nick A in <laughs> pillaging the trampoline gym. Yeah, that, that is fantastic. That, can you read that again one more time, uh, Alex, or is that really uh, difficult yeah, for you to control F that. <laughs> that is really really great so again the question from hell was uh what was it again uh when the next fall comes where are you pillaging first and the winner is nick a who said to the trampoline gym i've always wanted to go to one and i think the fall would be a very appropriate time to go bonkers in there and mess it up <laughs> saying go bonkers in there and mess it up i think was really the icing on that cake so congratulations nick uh, i'm gonna get in touch and get your email because that's your mailing address bonkers is the perfect verb for jumping on a trampoline. This is how office hours happen this Tuesday. Tuesday, July 3rd, from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, the bar downstairs from This Is Hell with This is Hell's office, and soon our studio as well. Drop by Tuesday evening, Tuesday, July 3rd. Hang out and chat me up, and I'll give you a free book related to the show just for dropping by on Tuesday, July 3rd. That is, if I remember. And I haven't been remembering lately, and the books are starting to pile up in my office. So come on in, say hello, watch me drink, get a free book, and some This Is Hell advertising stickers so you can subvert public advertising with the words, This Is Hell. This Is Hell office hours happen this week only on Tuesday, July 3rd. Then after that, we go back to our regular Wednesday night schedule. Tuesday, July 3rd, 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. Because we want to accommodate people who generally can't come to This Is Hell office hours because they work on the day after This Is Hell office hours. So we've moved it up one day. For those of you who have July 4th off, you can therefore hang out with us and actually maybe make it to office hours this week. Again, it's happening on Tuesday, July 3rd, 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. 
I want to thank the people who dropped by this past week, and there's no way I can remember all of them, but the ones that I can remember, I even lost my sheet that had a list of all the people who were there, because it's the only way I can remember everybody who was there. Anyway, thanks to George, who donated a zero-euro note featuring Karl Marx for our raffle at the upcoming This Is Hell anniversary slash listener appreciation slash art opening party with music, food, and that raffle. Also, uh, thanks to Tom G for dropping by and... Tom has now given us 20, 20 zero euro notes featuring Marks for our raffle on July 21st. Also, thanks to Dave, Brian, producer Alex, my girly, new volunteer Leo, Eric, and I'm certain there were a lot more people, but I misplaced my list like I was saying. And I need to have that list because uh, due to drinking, I'll probably forget who dropped by, which... Apparently, I did. By the way, if you have any suggestions for bands, artists, or would like to donate any prizes for Saturday, July 21st, Listener Appreciation and This Is Hell Anniversary Party, tell me during office hours Tuesday, July 3rd, or email me at chuck at thisishell.com. And you can talk me up and get free books and stickers, hopefully, at This Is Hell office hours this Tuesday, July 3rd, 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. If you want to hear This Is Hell over the air on your local radio station, assuming you still have one, impose our content upon your neighbors. Email us your local radio station's call letters to chuck at thisishell.com, chuck at thisishell.com. Some of you are already suggesting local stations for us to include in our burgeoning Not the Media radio network. Again, if you want to hear us on your favorite local station, email us the call letters at chuck at thisishell.com. Or you can just email your local station and tell them why your source for anti-social media is This Is Hell. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, freedom is at war with the conservative view of capitalism, which opposes competition and ignores the power of money. Jeff is appalled by Scrotus during a moment of truth. All that, plus we have a whole bunch of people we want to thank for supporting This Is Hell and sharing the show online. Maybe we'll get to twist off knowledge. Maybe we'll get back into listener feedback. I'll be reminding you over and over and over again that our upcoming This Is Hell anniversary and listener appreciation party and art show is happening in three weeks on Saturday, July 21st at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West of Onnit in Chicago's Little India Chai Town neighborhood from 3 p.m. until basically when you leave with music, art, food, a raffle, and of course, we'll also be telling you later on this morning's show what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, This Is Hell, conservative right-wing economics, is all about a free market ideology that supposedly gives us greater freedoms and increased competition but it doesn't do either. Here to describe the blow-by-blow fight between freedom and capitalism, economist Rob Larson is author of the new book, Capitalism Versus Freedom, The Toll Road to Serfdom. Welcome to This Is Hell, Rob. Hi, Jack. Thanks for having me. Rob is the author of the 2012 book, Bleakonomics, a heartwarming introduction to financial catastrophe, the job crisis, and environmental destruction. He's a professor of economics at Tacoma Community College in Washington State. And you can follow Rob on Twitter at Ironic Professor. Ironic Professor. So uh, you write that before looking into how our economic system helps or hurts human freedom, 
It's worth thinking about what freedom is. Most of us think of freedom as what you do when nothing's stopping you. It's the ability to do what you want within the limits of your free time and budget. If freedom is limited by budget, then isn't freedom limited by capitalism? Or is freedom multiplied by capitalism in that capitalism provides a system within which you can act upon and express your freedom? Yeah, right on. Well, that's uh, sort of the big, one of the big uh, debates around freedom. And I talk about this a little bit briefly in my book's introduction is exactly, you know, how do we recognize what freedom is? And yeah, most of us would say freedom. It's what I, it's whatever you enjoy doing with your free time. That's the value of freedom to you. Uh, but philosophers have for a little while argued exactly about what the concept is. And there's sort of a very broad distinction they like to draw. So they'll say that negative freedom on the one hand, that's the uh, sort of tradition where you're free from the interference of others. So if you're free from some institution telling you what to do, then you've got some freedom in that sense. And they call that negative freedom in uh, some of the philosophical traditions. But then also they'll say there's a second concept, the freedom to do different types of things. And that's sometimes referred to, posit- referred to as positive freedom. And the way they traditionally break it down is they'll say, well, negative freedom is the one you want. And capitalism and markets provide that because government can't tell you what to buy or where to work under capitalism. And so you have freedom from their, their, uh, from their power, basically, freedom from that negative kind of freedom. And they'll suggest maybe that positive freedom, yes, markets don't provide that, but maybe that's something we don't want because that's too much of an entitlement to think that you're free to consume different things. So that's how they sort of split it up traditionally. Yeah, which I found really fascinating. It's freedom from or freedom to, and I found those two different things fascinating. Why uh, do you think that, because you write at one point about how we all pretty much agree on negative freedom, uh, the freedom from others to constrain our freedom, but we don't agree on the freedom to do things. Does that reveal something? Does that lack of agreement on positive freedom, does that reveal something to you about our society or culture under capitalism or just in general? Yeah, well, naturally, yeah, we'd expect some healthy debate around these big social goals like freedom and equality. So up to that point, it's reasonable. Uh, To me, I think it is interesting, though, that most of these somewhat more conservative economic thinkers, the ones I mostly highlight in the book are uh, Frederick Hayek and Milton Friedman, although there's plenty of others who come up, they would mostly say, yeah, positive freedom, that it creates too much entitlement, and it's sort of a way that those sneaky socialists are trying to get us toward equality. They'll say any child that's born in the U.S. should have a positive freedom to consume goods up to whatever is, you know, uh, doable under our standard of living at the time. And their attitude, of course, for the last uh, 40 years, pretty successfully, has been to use government policy to move us away from any kind of freedom to uh, do anything in terms of our political rights. So cutting taxes on wealthier income households and deregulating and so on. All those steps, which Friedman and Hayek had a big role in, those are all about confining us toward a uh, that view of negative freedom and not seeing it in any other way. And I should say, too, that Friedman, for example, uh, openly talks about this, and he says we should confine ourselves to negative freedom. And so for a lot of my book, um, I sort of take that position just because that's their position. <laughs> and the argument my book makes is that if you kind of think about it critically, capitalism and markets don't really provide either of these kinds of freedom, because powerful people with wealth 
like you said, with huge budgets, and also corporations with giant market share or near monopoly status, like a lot of our Silicon Valley firms these days, uh, they have huge power over our lives, and we're susceptible to all the ramifications of their power plays from you know, selling our data to people to closing down industries and moving them overseas. So I think if you dig in, what it really says is we're having a really shallow debate about freedom in this country. You write that reductions of the power held within a society are thought to expand freedom. So is freedom then always in conflict with power, with the uh, trying the uh, attempt to attain more and more power? Yeah, that's sort of the, exactly, that's sort of the traditional negative freedom view. And I should say, I think that's pretty sensible, uh, at least, you know, definitely up to a point. All of these principles have limits, of course, but I think that that's pretty reasonable. The whole idea of having a republic instead of a king or a monarchy or something is that representative government is constrained in what it can do. And a lot of the time it needs popular consent in some form to take action. And we consider that to be more free than a monarchy or some other dictatorship, because that gives us a little more political freedom to decide what to do, but also leaves us less subject to whatever power place they have. It limits or constrains what power they can exert over us. You quote a past guest on our show, Amart Yassin, the Nobel Prize winning economist, writing that sometimes the lack of substantive freedoms relates directly to economic poverty, which robs people of the freedom to satisfy hunger or to achieve sufficient nutrition or to obtain remedies for treatable illnesses or the opportunity to be adequately clothed or sheltered or to enjoy clean water or sanitary facilities. You add, Sen's point was that to the extent that an economy can afford these services for the population, their lack of a positive freedom to use and benefit from them is a real limit to liberty, a situation often seen in the persistence of deprivations among segments of the community that happen to remain excluded from society's wealth. So within capitalism, can only the wealthy enjoy freedom? And without capitalism, can anyone enjoy freedom? Well, I think that, that first uh, question really crystallizes the issue there. Yeah, like to the extent under a market economy like our global economy now, to the extent that you've got more money and more economic resources of different types, that does increase the scope of your personal freedom in a very meaningful way. <laughs> It uh, opens up hugely the scope of the actions you're free to take in terms of how you enjoy life and what you get to experience. I mean, everyone knows that you know, billionaires get to do fun things. But furthermore, it opens you up to be powerful. You know, I think anyone who thinks about this can sort of see the logic there. I mean, if you wanted to be as influential, what's, what's the most influential person you could be? A lot of people would think I'd be the president or something like that. And that's a very, very powerful position, as we painfully know right now. But uh, I would suggest if you really want to be powerful, you should be like Rupert Murdoch and own a gigantic global media empire and have a lot of power, a lot of influence, at least, over the ideas that people hear and what concepts and thoughts they're exposed to. And that's a power that's not term limited and it's not subject to constitutional restraints. And if it's economic power, I mean, your fortune grows. There's no ceiling to how much influence you can accumulate as some giant plutocrat <laughs> So absolutely, I think having that much wealth certainly certainly increases your uh, individual freedom, for better or worse. And as far as whether we can have freedom under any kind of other system, well, you know, like we're, we're sort of getting at here, freedom has a lot of different aspects to it. 
and they're somewhat legitimately debated, but we do recognize that our modern societies are freer than, you know, a monarchy or some totalitarian arrangement like the Soviet Union or something like that. And Hayek, especially, and also Friedman, frequently make that comparison. Let's say, look how free we are compared to the Soviet Union and its tyranny. I have to say, that is the lowest bar possible for superior to these police states. That is like a true fact, but it's also not saying a huge amount. But it's true that commerce and business and capitalism, they require a looser, less regimented environment for businesses to grow, to find investments, and to become rich and powerful. What freedoms does capitalism fall short in guaranteeing? Right on, yes. That's sort of the big thesis of my book, right? Everyone, like the conventional view is that capitalism provides that negative freedom because you don't have the government dictating everything to you, but it doesn't provide positive freedom. In my view, it doesn't provide either because indeed, under the marketplace, there's no guarantee that you will be able to feed your child because you don't have a freedom to give them their share of society's production. So we agree on that. But if you look at the amount of power that firms have, I think it's almost impossible to claim they have that negative freedom either uh, in any legitimate sense of it. I mean, the amount of influence that large firms, especially as they gain a lot of market share and make alliances with one another, the amount of power they have over our lives is amazing. And just lately, I mean, it's all over the headlines with even the most innocuous seeming businesses like Facebook. It's a classic example. When people mention Facebook, everyone rolls their eyes and go, oh, rolls their eyes and goes, ah, I know I waste so much time on Facebook. Can I see these trivial cat memes? Ha ha ha. And that's true. And I love cat memes. But lately, Facebook's in the news for having huge maybe more than people realize, huge access to enormous amounts of data, not just what we consciously give it, but things that they determine about us and which we aren't allowed to view in all of their new look at how we're classifying new schemes. And it turns out they're selling our data off and changing everything about how we experience the internet browsing environment. And if that's not power, you know, I don't know what is. And so I would agree with Friedman, we should have less power by big institutions over our lives, limiting our freedom. But I think that the real consequence of that is going the opposite direction of all the Reaganite policy recommendations that Friedman made. And we should consider how much authority and power lives in the marketplace, because that definitely, I think it's very difficult to argue. And if you read the arguments in the book, I think it's hard to make the case that that doesn't restrict our freedom in real ways. In your book, you write that, uh, you are, well, you make the argument that capitalism and markets fi- uh, fail the tests for both categories of freedom. Capitalism withholds opportunities mm-hmm. to enjoy freedom required by the positive view of freedom and also encourages the growth of economic power, the adversary of liberty, and the negative view of freedom. So to you, what explains Friedman's and Hayek's inability to see that capitalism encourages the growth of economic power over others, to see the power of money? Why do they deny the power of money? All right, that's that's a great question. I think uh, there, I mean, I think I think the way to see the answer to that question, which does come up occasionally through the book, I mean, it's got to. So I think that you know, that's a very very relevant question. And of course, Friedman and Hayek. We should add to the side here. Of course, our late figures. You know, they're both dead. But there are obviously, if you turn on talk radio or Fox News, you'll see plenty of figures, economists and others, defending all these systems and making the same arguments today. So you know, why? Are they totally incapable of even addressing the issue, let alone, you know, changing their minds about? 
Yeah, exactly. The fact that capitalism seems to limit our freedoms in these ways that we're describing here. Well, I think the clearest thing to do is just look at other societies. Sometimes that's helpful for seeing principles. And so if we look back, you know, any notorious regime where we would all agree there was a serious lack of freedom or other negative features, you know, if we look at Russians in the Soviet era or, you know, the Nazi intellectuals, and they had plenty of them, or, you know, the intellectuals who supported any social regime in the past, you know, we could go back to the Catholic clerics in the medieval period and see how they were justifying feudalism using the Bible. Take a look. All these horrible regimes had plenty of very educated, relatively privileged people, people we would call intellectuals probably by today's standards. And what do you know? Every one of them has some particular blind spot where they don't want to, you know, not even where they'll agree, where they won't even recognize that there's some major flaw in society involving freedom or anything else. And they have a real blind spot there. And by coincidence, it is one that is favorable to whoever is powerful <laughs> in their society. And that's just where this strange blind spot is. And isn't it strange that they can't notice this big flaw in their society? I think you realize that if they complained about those flaws or criticized what was bad about their societies, they wouldn't be the influential intellectuals. They'd be some obscure person and someone else who is willing to celebrate what's going on in their society would probably be more prominent. So I think societies and powerful systems tend to encourage certain intellectuals to become more successful and more prominent, like Friedman and Hayek, and others who would criticize the system more. I mean, why would the system promote them? (laughs) So I I think in the end, it is their own economic interest, and just those people who do sympathize with power will be the ones who get promoted and who we will later hear about. Is my guess. <laughs> and and uh, speaking of a blind spot, you quote William F. Buckley's 2008 obituary for Milton Friedman, <laughs> stating the period since 1980 has been the age of Friedman economically. The age of Friedman began approximately in 7980 when his disciples, Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan, took power. And these two leaders embarked on economic policies broadly inspired by his theories that have given their countries a quarter century of fast economic growth, interrupted only by two short and shallow recessions in the U.S. Is that an accurate depiction of the impact of Friedman's policies that began with Reagan and Thatcher? Does that description leave anything out? Uh, Yeah. Well, of course, yeah, that's very much a description from the sort of wealthy aristocratic class that Friedman comes from. But of course, what I'm kind of getting at there is that, uh, I mean, as I recall, Buckley wrote that, I believe that was 2006. Uh, Obviously, that's just months before the implosion of the housing market bubble in the U.S. and other Western countries, and just about two years prior to the entire collapse of the system, of course, in our 2008 financial crisis, which was 10 years ago by now. Uh, But exactly, it is sort of annoying that uh, both Buckley and Friedman weren't around to see the wheels really come off of the system. So maybe they checked out at the right time. You uh, point out that other major economists of this tradition on the right include Murray Rothbard, who uh, concluded that successful business people possess superior qualities. You also mentioned how that's the case with Ayn Rand as well. What impact does assigning values of superiority have on increased power and thus increased threats to constraints on freedom? Because it would seem contradictory for someone to believe a system can provide freedom while simultaneously considering certain people with the of the population to be superior. That's uh, interesting. And that is a tension that does exist in some of these works. That's, that's a good question. Uh, and if you take a look, like one reason I included Rothbard 
and also uh, another Austrian school, as we call some of our libertarian schools, um, uh, Ludwig von Mises, and Ayn Rand herself, is that there is, of course, a spectrum of views on the right, just like there is on the left or in any setting. Uh, and so Friedman and Hayek are maybe perhaps a little bit more mainstream. They're willing to actually advise governments and say, you know, you should cut supports for poor people and taxes on the wealthy and regulation, but they're willing to engage with the state. Of course, you also have more conservative figures, people who are further to the right. And those would be probably figures like Rothbard or Rand, who are considered to be somewhat more, not exactly purist, but I would say more consistent as libertarians, definitely. And it's true, you're right. They particularly, more than Friedman and Hayek, who kind of pushed this issue to the side, they were willing to really celebrate the, you know, their, their idea of executives and entrepreneurs, these great business people. And many of your audience probably will have read at least some part of any of the Ayn Rand uh, canon. And if you pick up those books, they're like exaggerated Hollywood versions of libertarian economics. Like all the business people, all the powerful executives in her book, for example, in her books, uh, they're very, they come up with all the technology that's made their company rich. Like they aren't just the CEO who gave money to the right inventor. They are the inventor or the architect or engineer who's made their company successful. And a lot of today's movies like Iron Man have a little bit more of this in them than I think people realize. Uh, but there very much is a tendency in that strain of the far right to see those figures as like these demigod figures. And again, pick up an Ayn Rand book. It's not subtle. Like the CEOs are these super powerful geniuses. And they're also very sexy and good looking, whereas like the government figures that want to regulate them are like fat, bald, unappealing people, according to her description, you know. So that's a little bit of a caricature. But it's true, like Rothbard and von Mises and Rand, there's a really strong strain there that celebrates those figures as being you know, an elite, as being different than us. And somewhere in that first chapter, I cite, uh, I think it's von Mises in a letter to Ayn Rand about how great her books are in which he says, you had the guts to tell people what no one else will, which is that normal people, what they have in life and take for granted, they get from the efforts of men who are better than them. He says that, meaning <laughs> CEOs and executives, who of course in reality do little work to get millions and millions of dollars in income. But in their picture, those are like supermen. And I actually do have a few paragraphs where I talk about how there is a certain almost fascism of capital among that strain on the right. And yeah, like to answer your actual question, sometimes it really doesn't seem like they see a contradiction between celebrating super powerful demigod investors and executives and still saying that the system is completely free. That tension exists. Uh, I'm not sure how they resolve it inwardly. They talk about it so rarely that it's maybe a little hard to get a lock on it. The Von Mises review that you quote of Atlas Shrugged also states, uh, you have the courage to tell the masses that no politician, what no politician told them, you are inferior in all the improvements in your conditions, which you simply take for granted. You owe to the effort of men who are better than you. You use the word fascistic. How much do you see this kind of thinking behind uh, the rise today of the far right here in the U.S. and abroad? Is this sense of superiority of the wealthiest, one of the causes of any resurgence we are seeing today in of fascism? Yeah, that, to me, is a slightly tougher question, because and I do try to keep up with this issue, but it's hard. Again, like in a lot of political areas, there's a lot of fragmentation on the right. And I feel like if you 
talk to the average, you know, adult conservative or your younger alt-right person, very frequently they're not pro, particularly the wealthy sometimes, but then they'll, they will say, oh, well, markets are more efficient and you shouldn't tax people because they worked hard for that money. But it's kind of latent, as they say. It's sort of just in their views as a mixture. They'll still watch a movie where a wealthy person is the villain and they'll go, yeah, get that villain, that jerk, you know? So it's, it's, Frankly, my impression is it's kind of a bit of a goofy jumble of views on the right these days, but it's mostly unified around a Manichaean hatred of the government, and it's there to serve all these women and not white people and immigrants and so on, and how dare it provide the best services. So Hayek and Friedman, the more slightly perhaps more centrist version, they are still very, very current in the movement. If you go to the Breitbart bookstore, which I'm sure your listeners do all the time. <laughs> if you go and check that out, you'll see those classic books that I'm trying to go after with mine uh, are very much still featured. And you'll see some Ayn Rand and stuff. Uh, generally, I think, actually, oh, I do mention this too in the book. Sometimes they'll try to square the circle this way. Like I remember Senator Ted Cruz from the great state of Texas uh, made a point. Like he uses Occupy Wall Street language sometimes. Like he'll talk about the 1% and the ruling class. But instead of that being the tiny minority of super wealthy families that own all the stock in the corporations that run our economy and exert power over us, he said the 1% is just companies that have a connection with the government. And so it's a government 1%. To the extent we have millionaires or monopolies that we don't like, that's the government's fault. And everything else in the market, that's just free. Start a business. And you're on the same playing field as Jeff Bezos in these guys' eyes. But it's, it's very flimsy, and obviously that won't hold up very long <laughs> to real argument. But because, uh, again, these guys, and, you know, like a lot of political areas, they're confined to people who say or who see things basically the way they do. It's hard sometimes for them to break out of that sort of limited view. So is the right's view of freedom then, freedom for only a certain class who deserve it while others serve them so they can enjoy that freedom? Is that the demarcation that we are experiencing political, politically, that there are those who believe that only certain people deserve freedoms while the other side believes that everyone deserves those freedoms? Indeed. And of course, the way they would render it is to say, well, they earned their freedom by working hard. Why don't you poor people and leftists work hard, and then you'll be, you know, Bill Gates before you know it. Uh, yeah, and they definitely wouldn't put it in those terms, because again, on the right, the strong tradition is to claim freedom as a conservative ideal, and only, though, to confine it to that negative freedom aspect, which again, I think is a legitimate form of liberty. If you know, you're in prison, that's the lowest level of freedom you can have, and in that setting, the institution has complete power over you. So I'm all for having negative freedom. But the right uh, has so much experience, maybe, over down these long decades of confining people's ideas of freedom and liberty to just that negative part of the equation uh, that they can sort of consistently from moment to moment suggest, like, yes, that Jeff Bezos has more freedom to do things than other people because he earned it. And yes, you could perhaps have that freedom, but now you don't deserve it because you're still poor. That is, that is an argument you will encounter. <laughs> you quote Thomas Piketty writing on the concentration of wealth by 2010. The top 10% share of total wealth exceeded 70%, and the top 1% share was close to 35%. The inescap inescapable pr reality is this. Wealth is so concentrated 
that a large segment of society is virtually unaware of its existence, so that some people imagine that it belongs to, wealth belongs to, surreal or mysterious entities. Can the same be said of the wealthiest view of the poorest, that they are so disconnected that they view the poor, the poorest as surreal or mysterious entities as well? Wow, that's a great question. Uh, well, so yeah, that, that first portion is one of my favorite thing, things Piketty says, and I did read his 900-odd-page book a few years ago. It's very rewarding. Uh, that's just one of the most evocative things he says. Like most people now are so far from realizing what wealth is because wealth is now so concentrated up at the top with those families that make most of their money from their financial holdings, from their stock holdings and so on, that most people have this, yeah, this strange semi-mystical view of what money is. And if you know, they meet anybody who has you know, a dentist salary, sometimes they'll get the idea that, oh, that's, you're like the ruling class. And also the extent that people, you know, maybe a two hardworking professional, a hardworking professional couple retires for their retirement, they might have one or two million dollars in the bank. People hear that and they think, wow, you're like Tony Stark. You have an infinite fortune and you can fly into mountain headquarters and stuff. So I like that Piketty put that in. But that's a great question because it is definitely the case, yes, that uh, your wealthiest households and wealthier people have a sometimes hilariously mystified view of poor people. And usually, at least in the course of my reading, if you read uh, sources that are read by wealthy people, like the Wall Street Journal or The Economist, uh, the, I, the gentle, wonderful ideas they have about how poor people can somehow magically support themselves, even though they no longer have formal corporate employment because we've moved those investments and that production overseas, and yes, they don't have permanent housing because they can't afford that in a city anymore. And maybe they don't have any health insurance. So as soon as they get hit by a car, they're completely bankrupted. But they'll say, well, yes, but you have so little to lose. And we have so much flexibility when you're poor. And you can always turn to the church when you need support. <laughs> Just these hilariously blasé ways of writing off all the daily struggles of all middle class people. Uh, this sometimes is why it's worth reading conservative media, because it's worth getting an idea about how they view the poor, the little people <laughs> that they pretend to be supporting with their Trump campaigns and so on. And that's, it definitely goes both ways. That's a very interesting point, I think. Uh, when you have any kind of social segregation, whether it's based on class, like we're talking about maybe here, or you know, on traditional racial segregation lines, what those lines create is complete ignorance of what's going on on the other side of the line. And so who knows how wealthy people live? Who knows how those commoners live? You can find out, but you have to dig. And no one usually feels like doing that. But that's very interesting. I think the answer is yeah. Does more uh, equality necessarily mean more freedom? As we are seeing growing inequality, are we seeing uh, lessening of our freedoms? Yeah, definitely. That's definitely been the case, of course. Yeah, growing inequality, I think that's, one of the ramifications of what we're saying here, as all of our as our economy does grow year after year for several years recently, all the gains from that economic growth and that extra production of wealth are going to the wealthier households. The middle class and the sort of lower middle classes have been losing ground. And again, from that conceptualization of positive freedom, where we're looking at what you're free to actually do, that's a clear loss of freedom. 
So absolutely. Although with regard to that very first part, I should say there the answer is no, because I think the first thing was, uh, does more equality mean more freedom? Well, I think it can in a broader social sense. If we tax the, went back to taxing the wealthy and using that to fund services for poorer people like we used to do somewhat more in the New Deal period before the Reagan revolution, that would mean more positive freedom for the poor and middle class. That's true. But just being more equal doesn't necessarily mean more freedom. And every right-wing thinker has said this a trillion times. I know Hayek and Friedman say it in their books. Uh, one of the freest, one of the most equal environments that there is in the world is a prison. <laughs> just referred to that. So in a prison, those prisoners are almost uniformly equal. Their level of wealth is so essentially invisible when you're in the big house. But who would say that that's a free environment? Like, yes, it's equal, but you have zero freedom. So it's not having more equality. It's having more positive freedom, which would probably bring about more equality. If people had more freedom to consume, we'd expect to see a more equal level of consumption. So they're related, but it's not quite that one-to-one equation. I wanted to ask you about the media real quick. You write how the richest 5% of U.S. households in 2010 owned a formidable 67.1% of all stock, and the wealthiest 1% of stockholds had a staggering 35% of traded stock all to itself. To what degree, then, does one of the main measurements the media uses to determine the strength or weakness of the U.S. economy, the Dow, NASDAQ, S&P 500, how much are those really measurements for how well the economy is doing for the rich and not for everybody who's watching. Exactly. Uh, what you do see, what characterizes the modern capitalist class structure, it's mostly how you earn your income. People think, you know, when they talk about different levels of class structure, it's mostly about how much money you earn. So you're, upper, you're, you're a higher class than me because you have a higher paycheck. Uh, a lot of us would say that's a little simplistic. And I go into what characterizes our class system today in the book a little bit. I would say, and a lot of us on the left would say, it has more to do with how you earn that money. And for most of us, whether we're the blue or white collar part of the middle class, we, own our, we, we earn our money through working. You have a paycheck in some form, salary or wages, and that's how we get it. Wealthy households, they may very well work, and some of them are very highly paid CEOs, corporate board members, and so on. But they don't have to work because their income comes from their wealth, their existing wealth, like that stock wealth that you mentioned. And you know, very mainstream and conservative business news venues uh, will talk about how concentrated stock wealth is at the top. So that's what defines those wealthier households. So then what that naturally implies, though, is that, yeah, exactly what you said, we'll get the gains in the marketplace using any of these stock indexes you mentioned. Those mainly describe today's movements in the wealth hoardings of the wealthiest ruling class that we have. The way that the right will sort of address this is they'll say, whoa, hold on. Stock ownership is more dispersed today than ever. And they'll make the case that because you know, full-time middle-class workers, like me, for example, I work for a state college, you know, I have a small retirement fund, it's mostly you know, mutual funds and stock index funds. So I have a tiny, I personally have a very small stake in the stock market. But compared to the hundreds of millions of dollars of market wealth holdings of the wealthy class, it's invisible. And even as a share of my own small personal middle class wealth, it's very small. So yes, that stock index does have some economic meaning for anyone with a retirement account. And that could be blue or white collar middle class workers. But the gigantic majority of that 
Exactly, is concentrated in the wealthiest class. And that's, again, well understood. I mean, like last year, I remember the Wall Street Journal had a byline referring to stock ownership by household as being tightly concentrated, were their words. So absolutely, when we see the stock market go up, that's nice. But yeah, we shouldn't assume that's going to lead to more investment or more employment for us, let alone better salaries or health packages. (laughs) You quote labor researcher Katie Quinn putting it this way, not to think in terms of class is unfortunate, since no matter what our ideological persuasion may be, class analysis gives us a way of viewing the world that identifies power relationships. It clarifies who has power. Is that why the right or Americans in general do not want to have a discussion of class because it would reveal that the wealthiest among us have the power, making us powerless? Are we embarrassed to admit that the richest have the most power in the U.S. form of democracy? Oh, well, I think that's definitely true. I mean, even when people are critical of the wealthy these days, like Jeff Bezos or whomever, um, it's usually in the form of they have too much wealth, they should give some to us, uh, something along those lines, which is fine by me. But also, it's, it, doesn't t- it doesn't tend to address that power. Only sometimes does that connection to power and therefore back to freedom. Uh, tend to come up. But I think you're totally right. There is a tendency for us to resist talking about the class structure that we have domestically. But again, getting back to your earlier question about these conservative intellectuals and why they don't want to discuss issues of power or you know the, the legitimate issues around the need for positive freedom and our limits to negative freedom, every society has this tendency. You know, there's I don't know of a country that want, that's just eager where the, where the powerful elites, whatever they are, are eager to talk about their power and how much influence they have. Like I bet if we look at a different system, and there are a few countries remaining in the world that are more cut off from capitalism or are more, uh, or they have a somewhat different lineage. So if you look at Iran, which everyone enjoys hating these days, like, yes, they have a very unfree system too. They have elections like we do, but all their candidates are vetted by the arch-conservative clerics that run their fundamentalist government. Well, I doubt very much that if we probe into the Farsi media and intellectual debate in Iran, I doubt there's a huge amount of free debate about how much clerics should they, how much power should the clerics have and how do they exercise it. I'm sure that they focus on the United States blockading their economy and so on. Every society has this resistance to, you know, talking about who's powerful and how they're wielding their influence over society. That doesn't mean that we have to accept it, though. That's why you've got to read about it and dig into unpopular or alternative sources like your way cool program. <laughs> so is Kant, because you talk about how the policies of Friedman, especially Milton Friedman, and how they were uh, embraced by the Reagan administration, how once they were applied, it would lead to consolidation and concentration of wealth and companies verging on monopolies, if not becoming monopolies. Is concentration of wealth then an unintended consequence of Martin or Milton Friedman's economics, or are they the inevitable outcome, an outcome of which he was potentially aware, an outcome that he actually intended. Were his economics about consolidating wealth and concentrating power among the few so they could enjoy freedoms at the expense of the poor? Yeah, that's a good question because I feel like there's, and yeah, I try to look into this in the book a little bit because, yeah, we've been looking at concentration of wealth, but also the other half of that is concentration of market share. And having a market, you know, like one of our industries for you know, cars or haircuts or social media or whatever, sometimes those markets are competitive. 
and you have lots of different places to turn to. And that's the picture that's usually painted by guys like Friedman and Hayek. You know, you're free to choose. That was the name of Friedman's famous uh, book that he wrote with his wife and his PBS scheduled uh, show that he got to make. So there's that. And if you look at what they write, they suggest that if you deregulate these markets, like there's a mixture. They'll often say it won't lead particularly to any concentration or, you know, maybe ultimately leading to a monopoly. So I remember Hayek, for example, in The Road to Serfdom. Uh, he claims that, uh, this is from memory, there's something along the lines of, and it's quoted in the book, you'll see he says, uh, the concentration of industry that we're talking about. He says that that's a Marxist doctrine. <laughs> it's difficult to make that claim. Like, that's a bold claim for Hayek to make. I mean, there, bear in mind, you should remember, there was a whole period in U.S. history, for example, where we had... You know, in our early days of industrial capitalism, what we now call the Gilded Age, where we didn't have trade unions, we didn't have progressive taxes on the rich, we certainly didn't have big industrial or environmental regulations like we have some of now. Well, back, what was the result in that era? Monopolies. Like, that's the era of the Rockefeller Standard Oil Monopoly and Carnegie's Steel Monopoly and J.P. Morgan's Wall Street Cartel. And we had a cigarette monopoly then, for God's sake. So that's amazing to me that those guys can stand there and say, we deregulate. There's no necessary reason it's going to lead to monopoly. That's some crazy Marxist doctrine. But I cite this in the book, too. There's a, uh, there's a column that George Orwell, you know, the great critic of totalitarianism and uh, socialist himself, George Orwell, uh, he made a case in a column that he wrote where he was reviewing Hayek's book himself. And again, this is from memory, but he says Professor Hayek denies that competition will lead to monopoly. But in practice, that is where it has led. And I think Orwell's right on this. I think Hayek and Friedman are, to the extent that they say deregulating won't lead to monopoly and super powerful firms that, yes, limit our freedom through their uses of power. Like sometimes they'll make the claim that it won't happen. But then also Friedman makes a claim that, yes, maybe we'll get some big firms, but that's just because the economy is growing. You simple leftists <laughs> don't realize that it's you know, the economy is growing, too. It's not just a big company. But if you look at it, actually, yes, these firms gain market share, too. And there's nowhere better to see that than our brand new ascendant industrial sector, which is the tech industry, right? Silicon Valley, those firms are incredibly powerful. Several of them have monopoly power, basically from the creation of the industry because of what we economists call network effects. You can read about that in the book, too. So, that's kind of a mixed picture, but exactly whichever rhetorical strategy these figures have turned to, they've never been willing to accept that there will be a lot of monopoly and concentration in powerful firms, and they certainly aren't willing to ever make a connection between that and less freedom for us. But I think, I mean, you know, we're living in the landscape now that these guys didn't live to see. I think the fact that that has come to pass is almost undeniable. One last question for you, Rob. We've been speaking with economist Rob Larson. He is author of the new book, Capitalism versus Freedom, The Toll Road to Serfdom. Rob is a professor of economics at Tacoma Community College in Washington State. He's the author of the 2012 book, Bleakonomics, a heartwarming introduction to financial catastrophe, the job crisis, and environmental destruction. And you can follow Rob on Twitter at Ironic Professor. One last question for you, and as it is with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. I don't think it's that, eh, well, we'll see. So uh, our question from hell for you is, do we have more freedom when we limit capital than we do have when we limit government? 
That 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 is, that is a hellishly good question. Yeah, I, I think that kind of thing you got to look at specifics, and I appreciate that that's a wimpy answer. <laughs> but I think there are legitimately different contexts to any of these issues. Different countries and different economies have different levels of government or corporate influence over different parts of society. And all you can do is just get in and do a real analysis and see, okay, who's the powerful entity that's running this? <laughs> And sometimes it takes some work because they're happy to blame one another, and often you have to look at quantitative evidence and stuff. My, I mean, th- th- that's a very legitimately good question because people will make the point that, yes, government has the ultimate power, so we must be freer when we limit government because government can take all your property through taxes or send you to jail or draft you or just you know, say you're guilty of a crime and cut your head off. So there's a strong impulse there to say clearly the state. Because we all tend to say these days the state has a monopoly on violence, and that gives them that unique power. But also, capital is the mobile power center, too. It can pull up stakes, as many of us bitterly know, and lay you off and start new production somewhere else in the world where they can find poorer or more desperate people. So I don't know. Like That's, that's a very interesting question. That might take a whole symposium to answer there. I think it's sort of contextual. But really, I guess my answer would be it depends on what area you're looking at and how powerful the private or public institutions are and base your analysis on that. Rob, thank you so much for being on our show. This is a very fascinating book, and I really appreciate you being with us this week. Thank you so much. Word. Live from lands stolen from the natives, this is hell. Gotta love a guy who answers a question right on. In a few moments during the moment of truth, Jeff is appalled by Scrotus, whatever that is, The best way for you to get the word out about This Is Hell is to share the entire show or individual interviews or correspondence reports. This Is Hell has a very limited promotional budget, so we want to thank all of our listeners who share the show online. Thanks this week goes out to the people who publicly share the show or interviews or correspondence reports. Lots more shared, but many choose to do so anonymously. And considering Facebook's sharing of data, it's probably a good idea. This week, we got a ton of people to thank for sharing uh, This Is Hell because our listeners absolutely loved last week's show with Daniel Bessner on the truth about George Soros, Assad Haider on identity politics, Thomas Frank on how he got to Trump, and Philip Matera on corporate wage theft. So thanks to, okay, there's a lot, Julie, Rich, anti-tanky cookies for anti-reactionary nookies. Johnny, Greg, Nick, Eric, all the people who shared last week's interview with Thomas Frank, Jose, Jody, <clears throat> Deborah, Paul, Metropolis Books, somebody named Thomas Frank, Susan, Seamus, Anarchimedia, Mark, Rob, Dennis, Jesse, F, Anti-Capitalist League, Stephanie, Randall. Special thanks to everyone who shared our interview with Assad Haider on identity politics that Facebook blocked us from boosting because they deemed it too political, including Sean of Sean's Russia blog, who recently experienced the same kind of blocking by Facebook, Tom, Lisa, Mike, Maximilian, who writes great discussion with Thomas Haider about identity politics on This Is Hell. Thanks to Kale, who writes top 10 This Is Hell interview ever, deep dive on solidarity and how identity is used by the bad guys as a multi-purpose oppression palace. F yeah, solidarity. Heather, who writes, something I've been thinking about, still thinking, asking, demanding protection from the state government requires a victim identity that asks Big Daddy to save us when it was Big Daddy who did the dirty deeds in the first place. Hmm, paternalism? What does agent action look like versus victim action? Also, thanks for sharing our talk with Assad to David, 
Try, and when Try shared it, Jennifer replied, Whoa, I've been feeling and saying this is grossly uh, ineloquent ways, this ineloquent ways. Um, thanks for sharing. Thanks to Douglas for sharing our interview with Assad, as well as St. Louis's Black Rose Book Distro, where you can get Assad's book, apparently, if you are in St. Louis. Thanks to Matthew, who shared Assad's interview, as did Vyoar, who writes Identity Politics. By its very definition, is divisive along the same conflict lines the rich elites use to maintain their power and privilege over the divided. Malignant narcissists always triangulate and scapegoat and feed off the misdirected conflict between their victims. It's how Hitler got the good Germans to gas their neighbors, shopkeepers, and sanitation workers, and their children. And thanks this week goes out to the rest of our listeners who shared This Is Hell, including Nan, Marco, and Fred. By the way, Padma shared our interview with Philip Matera on corporate wage theft. And when she did, Benjamin replied by citing the book of James, chapter 5, verse 4, which states, With the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth, and the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. To which Padma replied with Second Corinthians chapter eight, thirteen through fifteen, our desire is not that others must be might be relieved while you are hard pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time your plenty will supply what you need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality, as it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. So there's that. And that's only the people who share This Is Hell publicly on Facebook. Thanks to all of you for sharing This Is Hell, however you share the show, whether it's through Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud, whatever. If you want to hear your name read on air and simultaneously spread the good word about the evil content of This Is Hell, all you have to do is share This Is Hell coming up on this week's This Is Hell during a singular moment of truth. Jeff is appalled by Scrotus, whatever that is. All that, plus some listeners we want to thank for supporting This Is Hell, and of course, what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, This Is Hell. Alex, I know you have heavy on the line. I know you do. One, two, you know what to do. A little powder for your chafing scrotus. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. There were several momentous legal cases heard this week. One about gerrymandering, one about public unions, one about keeping Muslims out of the country. And it was clear they were going to require careful consideration and intense analysis by the nation's most vital legal minds. Instead, they were heard by the Supreme Court. I'm appalled by Scrotus, the Supreme Court Republicans of the United States. They're awful. And there are officially going to be five of them now. They are rotten, those Scrotus. I'm here to complain about Mitch McConnell stealing the Supreme Court seat from Obama. I'm here to say that everyone is already thinking and saying what everyone is already thinking and saying, but I'm here to say it on this as hell. I'll tell you what I think about Mitch McConnell. 
Now, if a Democrat had done a version of what Mitch did and thwarted a Republican jerk from appointing a right-wing ideologue to the court, I would have said, good job, comrade. Except in Mitch's version, Obama wasn't a particularly left-leaning president, and Merrick Garland, whom Obama put forward as a sop to the GOP anyway, was no left ideologue. But apparently being reasonable, compromising, polite, and black are not things the GOP will allow to go unpunished. How many times did Obama learn that? Or rather, experience it, because he never seemed to learn anything. No Democratic leader would refuse a president his constitutional right to nominate a justice for a newly empty seat, and not since FDR, at least. Would any Democrat ever commit such a blatant violation of constitutional and congressional norms regarding the court? Certainly these days, Dems wouldn't dare poke the GOP hornet's nest. They're keeping their powder dry. They got so much dry, dry powder, they don't know what to do with it all. They're keeping it dry until the end of the world, which they think will be sooner if they keep their powder dry enough. Keep the powder dry to hasten the end times. The GOP, on the other hand, is willing to burn their powder at the drop of a hat. They'll do anything, they, anything to get what they want. The Dems are ready and willing to do nothing to get what they want despite having done nothing and yet not having got what they want. All the Dems have is a surplus of dry powder, over which they've erected a bulletproof dome to make sure it never ignites. Dry powder for dry powder's sake. There might not really even be any powder there. I've never seen any evidence of it. Maybe powder is like mental acuity. If you don't use it, you lose it. Now, waffling agony Kennedy is retiring. Say goodbye to the constitutionally protected abortion. Thanks, Obama. Say goodbye to what's left of the Voting Rights Act, organized labor protections, and Muslims getting visas. Oh, wait. That already happened this week. All right, well, say goodbye to freedom of the press. I mean, we weren't using it much anyway. It was just sitting outside, chained to a fence post, getting rusty in the rain, and someone even stole the seat and the front wheel. But have no fear. At least our powder's dry. You know what you can do with that powder? Put a foot's depth of it, about a foot's depth, in a bucket, mix it with some water, put your feet in, let it harden, and throw yourself off a pier. It's the same result as keeping your powder dry, only quicker, and your surviving kin can reuse the bucket. At least we won't have to hear Dems belly aching about everyone having to vote for one of their Wall Street candidates for president out of fear of the court turning solidly conservative. What's the point? The court is a mess now. You got Thomas, Alito, Roberts, Gorsuch, and I'm guessing Stephen Miller, maybe David Duke, Thomas, who just sits there waiting for the conversation to be over, Alito, who, Alito, who's like Scalia without the personality, Roberts, who's like a cop, and the next scrote will be a race theorist, I'm sure. Ginsburg, Sotomayor, Breyer, and Kagan are the last remnants of reason on the court, and Ginsburg is in a race with Clarence Thomas to see who can live longer with their pre-existing condition, old age on the one hand and spiritual morbidity on the other. Kagan and Sotomayor will live forever, or at least until the right-wing patriots start assassinating anyone with an opinion that doesn't line up with the new Pledge of Allegiance, which says, you agree to the superiority of Christianity, the dollar, and the white race. It really is a worry, this fascist regime. There's already a plague of violence being perpetrated by cops and unstable white, post-pubescent, fledgling, misogynist fascists. Be prepared for it to get worse. You hear? Be prepared for the violence to get worse. You know, these are violent, easily misled people. There's always a huge percentage of violent, stupid, thoughtless, confused people in any nation. And eventually, 
thanks to whatever system that nation has for installing crooked imbeciles to rule its acreage, a prize-winning dancing swine of exceptional greed, mendacity, and shameless grandstanding inevitably gets his tiny hands on the tiller, willing to incite with lies and vicious rhetoric the cruel and cowardly of the land to take to the streets and punish the innocent. And it's coming. It started. Black people will tell you it's been going on forever, but that's just because for them it has. So they're biased. But as already here as it is, more and worse is coming. For some of you, this will mean getting into fighting shape or maintaining and sharpening your battle skills. For people like me, it means being prepared to cry and bleed and run and hide, sharpen my first aid skills, my bedside manner, and refresh my memory on recipes for preparing dumpster food and roadkill. I'm not saying we won't win. I'm saying I will be injured, and our new socialist candidate for Congress will undoubtedly be shot at by at least one 20-something white man. Remember all the people they assassinated in the 50s, 60s, and early 70s? Guns fever! It hurts to know that so many of our fellow citizens are willing to scapegoat helpless people. It hurts to watch our children, our journalists, and friends murdered in cold blood. It hurts to get beaten, so I've heard. It hurts to have your child or your mother taken from you by belligerent authorities who are accountable to no one. Because when it comes down to it, who would hold them to account? The president's a vicious, vain idiot, useless for anything. Our legislature is made of crooks who buy and sell influence, certainly worthless as a safeguard against tyranny, which they have shown they're all too willing to welcome. And now the final domino of the judicial branch has fallen. Dump is a man who never met a deadly sin he could resist. And now Agony Kennedy is retiring, allowing Dump to seat another pervert on the bench. Let's see if the worthless, impotent Democrats, who are as complicit in this fiasco as anyone, can muster a show of resistance. It'll be half-hearted, though. It's beginning to seem a lot like Republicans are just the party that happens to be thuggish enough to carry out the crimes that Dems are fine with, but too genteel to commit. For all the lack of energy they devote to stopping the GOP, they are rewarded a thousandfold in lack of results, which seems to suit them just fine. Let the GOP be the enforcement arm of the Democratic Party. Dry powder is their brand. The worst is yet to come. Crappy days are here again. Vulgarity is just around the corner. It suddenly occurs to me, I'm sorry, that I may be overreacting. Dump hasn't even nominated anyone for Kennedy seat yet. It may turn out to be another suitor. Someone for whom the principles of law are more important than the ideology of the creature who nominated him. Or it could even be some great Mahatma, whose grace and gentle example of compassion will move the scrotus to change, to free their minds and attain enlightenment. Yet have you read the three female justices' blistering dissenting opinions on the current decisions, especially Kagan's on the Muslim ban? Have you read Justice Kagan's blistering dissenting opinion on it? I have not. I heard it was blistering, and I don't want to get a blister. But can even a Mahatma or a Thurgood Marshall succeed in expanding the stunted souls of the scrotus where these three mighty women have failed to make even a dent in their stolid skulls? There's a lot of wishful thinking there. I like wishful thinking almost as much as I enjoy positing the worst. It keeps the mind nimble and the heart from sinking. Try it, but don't get too optimistic unless you're a fan of crushing disappointment. I'm going to get back in shape for crying and bleeding. I'm already bleeding money, so that's a start. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. All right, Jeffy, you stay beautiful. All right, I will. Bye-bye. 
Live from the good old U.S. of A., where capitalism is all our pimp, this is hell. If you want to make certain capitalism doesn't become this is hell's pimp, support this is hell at thisishell.com. There's now a couple of ways you can support this is hell at thisishell.com. All you have to do is just go there and click on support and find out how. Thanks this week goes out to the support of David Braden, Cherish, and the tithing of Daniel, Brett, and Magnificent Me. Alex, what's happening on next week's show? Uh... All right, uh, Yasha Levin will be on to talk about his book, All Effed Up, E-F-F, apostrophe D, Up, Silicon Valley's AstroTurf Privacy Shakedown, and also writer Eileen Truax will be on to talk about her book, We Built the Wall, How the U.S. Keeps Out Asylum Seekers from Mexico, Central America, and Beyond. And you can go to our Patreon podcast this uh, coming week, and you'll hear a preview, kind of, of that uh, discussion on immigration when we talk with Fran Sullivan from back in, I believe, 2002, about uh, the problems with migration even back then that we were addressing here on This Is Hell. Thanks this week goes out to Alex, Leo, and Richard for being here to produce this week's show. Thanks to Jeff Dorchin for delivering the Moment of Truth, who will be back next week with yet another uh, Moment of Truth. Thanks to Ronaldo for helping us out with the mo- with uh, Rotten History. Thanks to our guests, economist Rob Larson, author of Capitalism Versus Freedom, journalist Catherine Nixie, author of The Darkening, Darkening Age, The Christian Destruction of the Classical World. Thanks to political science scientist Ed Bermilla, who wrote the Baffler article, uh, Out of Sight, Out of Mind, Out of Our Minds, about Australia's own immigration catastrophe. And you can uh, hear his podcast, Mass for Shut-Ins, by going to ginandtacos.com. Thanks to our correspondent in Mexico telling, giving us a preview of, this, of tomorrow's election, uh, Laura Carlson. Uh, and thanks to law professor Robert L. Tsai, who talked to us about Trumpism before Trump. And this week's Hangover Cure was former Oasis frontman Liam Gallagher's hangover cure, at least according to the Northeast Mississippi Daily Journal. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show, and that's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying these simple words everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. <laughs>